Welcome in, one and all, to a special edition of the Travis Dufour Show. As we wait for season three, we are going to start pushing out some special episodes of the Travis Dufour Show. I am Travis Dufour. You can follow the Travis Dufour Show at the Dufour Brand, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, you name it, we are there. Uh, keep up to date with the show. And without any further ado, a longtime friend of mine, a, a one-time, just once, enemy uh, that stared across from me in the middle of the ring, uh, Jake the Machine Davis. How you doing, Jake? I'm doing great. This is exciting for me. I've listened to the first two seasons, and I'm excited for the third season to come along, and I'm glad I can be a part of the special content in between seasons. Yeah, I, and I had your brother Tate on in season two, and it was a big revelation in that episode that you and Tate are brothers. Not a lot of people know that? And not a lot of people knew that for years while we were in wrestling, because we started at the same time, and it was probably a decade before people started trying to piece it together, even in the locker room, because we just didn't talk about it. He started with Tate Griffin. I started with Jake Davis, and that was where we went our whole career. And your first day of I'll... training, dude, were you... Were you guys introducing yourself? Ah, we're brothers from Cumberland. No, we never even said wow. that we were brothers. Uh, the two of us and Leatherman, uh, Leslie Leatherman, all went down together, signed up together, and we just, as far as they knew, we were just three buddies that showed up that wanted to try it at the same time. But uh, I promise during the course of this podcast that I will say the F-bomb way less than Tate Griffin <laughs> does because that's part of his vernacular or vernacular or whatever the word is. But, uh, yeah. And I do appreciate that. We're trying to get sponsors. Yeah, so. I was, I was thinking you. that. <laughs> So uh, life is pretty interesting for Jake the Machine Davis at this point. Um, you're not necessarily like an active wrestler banging out every weekend, hitting the road, but you're still very much so involved in the wrestling business. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the weird thing is now that the, with the new training center opening up and with these new uh, shows on Thursdays, I'm involved in it way more than I was in the last couple of years. Um, last November was actually, well, a year from this past November was my last match. And uh, there was a whole official a whole bunch of reasons on that. Just last official match. Yeah, it was it was against uh, Luke Gallows in Short Gap, uh, West Virginia, and uh, in our year end show of twenty twenty one. So yeah, I didn't wrestle at all in twenty twenty two. A lot of injuries piling up, but then there was a lot more. I wanted to kind of. I got to the point where I decided that it was time to sort of fade back and be like sort of the, the actor slash turn director. And, uh, and there was so many, you know, there's so much young talent now. I felt like I, maybe I could hold on to one of those spots, but why do it if I can be in the back and try to spread some knowledge to the guys that are young enough to do it and not, you know. And, so that uh, means you feel pretty good about the next generation. I do. And, uh, and uh, I mean, we have such a great, we've always had a great roster and it was weird because Tate and I will talk about it and we look over the, the different waves of the rosters we've had. And it's like we look at certain, you know, in like 2009, 10, 11, and then we look at, into like the 2014s to 17s, and it's like the whole roster was completely different. There might be one guy or two guys that were still there beyond he and I. And then, you know, we look now, and it's like a completely different roster again. Or, you know, in that middle era of elite, because, you know, in my opinion, like about five or six years is kind of like a wrestling generation. Um, sometimes you can go seven. So whenever I look at like the guys on the roster now, we're like the elderly old timers. Even you know we've been around like twenty five years or whatever. And but then you got guys that have been around for like you know that thirteen to fifteen, sixteen year range. And while they've been around a long time, like they're significantly behind us. And then of course you know it, it just breaks back down to the guys that have just signed up recently and started training. So it's uh it, it makes for an interesting roster looking in there. And you got. 25 years, but people across the whole 25 years of 
three trainings and then, you know, a thousand plus matches. It is 2023. What year did the EPWA start? Uh, 2009. June, wow. June of 2009 was our first show. We started the training center, I believe, maybe two months before that. And then we, it, that was actually Tate's idea to run a show as part of the, because we got a lot of buzz. We had a lot of guys that signed up. You know, some of the, the younger age guys like uh, like Bodie Williams and Vince, the Final Verdict, Vince Vega, Jason Riggs. There was uh, so many guys that came in all at once. Uh, Jason Justice. I mean, there so, was a guy with uh, Titus in his name too, wasn't it? Uh, Scott Titus. Yeah, yeah he was Scott. actually Jason Riggs when he started, and he ended ah. up shifting, you know, his his persona and everything. But uh, I thought he was a pretty boy. I was like, man, if anybody's gonna make it, it's gonna be this kid. He and he was <laughs> he was so good too. He and, was, uh, and, and you know, Jack kid, super athletic, too athletic sometimes for his own good. Like you know, overcompensating with certain things it was like you got to slow down. Like, do you think that Bodie Williams is maybe your star pupil? I mean, he's still at it to this day. He's still in phenomenal shape. Yeah. Like he's kept up his shape the entire time. I mean, I think so. He's kind of he's kind of like our our sting, so to speak, yeah. because he's he's always been here from the start. Like when we look across the whole roster, there's guys that have faded out for whatever reason, whether they went on to other you know moved to another region or got out of wrestling altogether, or if they just got injured or whatever the case may be. But Bodie's always been around, and he's he brings the same hype and excitement that he now that he did back then and you know he's obviously kept himself in great shape i mean he, he looks like a star every time you see him it doesn't matter if he's in a ring or if you see him you know walking down the street but uh yeah he's he's an unbelievable talent he really is and he's one of those guys too that you know he'll he could go i mean not that he really does but he, like he could go six months or a year without having a match get in there and not miss a step yeah most guys build the rust pretty quick i mean i know i did whenever i'd have little gaps if i got injured or something even for a couple months and then you get in there and it's like man i'm either a little more sore or a little more hurt a little slower getting up a little little slower falling down but yeah he's a guy that just never seems to to hit that he never slows down and that's like that golden era of elite pro wrestling alliance when you you guys first started it you guys sold out your first event and just started it with a bang what and what sold out it was pretty shocking because it was we actually ran out of chairs at about 400 we ended wow. up having 462 i believe is what the tickets were sold for an independent show around yeah. here yeah that's a lot it was in our original uh training center this is the, this is actually our third training center but the original one was a huge auction house and we basically had the large room and then he had like a two-story addition onto that where he had a lot of his the guy that, that owned the auction house when we leased it, very similar to what we did with the last one that we had where we leased a, a huge portion of a building and then this one here, same deal. But that one was gigantic, and we were like, well, okay, well, we can move some of the stuff that's you know part of the auction house out of the way. And I mean, it's such a big room, we could probably get 300 people. And then we managed to go around, accumulate 400 chairs. We're like, this is so many more. Like, well, I think we only set up maybe 240 chairs, I think, initially. And it was it looked pretty packed and I was like, well, if we can spread people out, that'll be great. Next thing you know, like people just piling in the line starts going, you know, 300 yards down this huge driveway that went to the building. And next thing you know, like we're back behind, we had a whole wall that was like the, where the two story was. We had a balcony and everything. It was actually a, a sweet setup, but we didn't expect it to be like that. And then you start hearing like rushes when like music was playing before everything started. And then we looked out there and like the count just kept coming and coming. And next thing you know, we're, we got, a bunch of the young guys that were super, like, very young, like, post Bodie Williams and all those guys I named, that were brand new, so they weren't on the card. So they were the ones out there with staff shirts setting more chairs up. And then more people showed up, because at that time you didn't have any kind of pre-notion on how many 
tickets you sold, everything was at the door. We didn't do any pre-sales or anything. Like, do you so have any names booked? Uh, on, not on the first show. Yeah, and you had that many people showing yeah, up. It was, it was insane. I think it was just, we got out there and, you know, we had probably eight or ten trainees that were having their first match on that card. Okay. You That'll know, push Jason some tickets. Justice yeah. and, and, you know, uh, Final Verdict Vince Vega, Bodie Williams, all those guys that I mentioned in uh, Mojo the Spider Monkey and God Rest His Soul. And, and uh, but, was you know, Jack on that one too? Uh, no, he did, he hadn't started with us quite yet at that point. He he come in probably, I'm thinking like maybe a year, two years after that, after we initially started. And uh, But yeah, and then it just packed up. And then, and, you know, it was like, I think 462 was the final number that I had gotten. Um, and then the, the, the next show that we did the following month, because like by that point I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. Like we were just blown away. I mean, obviously we had some family that were coming. It was our first show and friends and, you know, the, all the wrestlers, like I said. And, but like there was a huge market right there that nobody really tapped into that much. Like, you know, there was shows in the early 2000s, like in Cumberland, and there was shows in Kaiser yeah. that was there. But like a lot of the shows that you'd see in Kaiser, I mean, Dick Kerakoff was always good at packing Potomac State College, but anytime any other shows were there, there wasn't a huge market for people. And, uh, but yeah, when that happened and then Tate was like, we should probably run another one. And I was like, cause I was, <laughs> I was all about the training center. Like I wanted, uh, our initial thing was we want to bring people in. We want to train them the right way. So they understand the absolute fundamentals and then start getting them to where they can go out on shows and then strengthen the area of wrestling. Like we didn't want to yeah. be the area of wrestling. We weren't planning on having the league. And then we ran that first one just to test the waters. So they had a chance to have their first match in front of an audience of what we thought would be, you know, maybe a hundred people if we were lucky. And then it turned into something like that. And I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of insane. And then he was like, there's no way we can't keep doing it. And then by the second show, we ended up having, I think 426, which is funny. Cause it's like, you know, 462, 426. That's how I remember the numbers, but it was another packed show in that building. And then, uh, so I was like, Oh, we kind of have a league now. <laughs> like we got to, you know, obviously we came up with the name and stuff beforehand, but, but again, like we had, 10 different versions of what the name would be too, which was, you know. Wow. And, and so before this, you weren't talking about, ah, who's going to be the first champ? Who's gonna no, none that? of that stuff. It's funny with the first show too, because um, I didn't like, I always hated when like the booker or the promoter put themselves over for the belt. Hmm. So. Why? I, I just, I don't know why. Like it seems obvious to somebody behind the curtain because you know you're going to be there every time. You never have to worry yeah. about somebody no-showing. You never have to worry about somebody not wanting to do business That's or the you know, whatever it is. Yeah. And then, But at that time, I was thinking, it just seems like everywhere I've ever been that people did that, it was like it was more of an ego stroke to themselves. And, and, and that was across the board in just about every, every league in the quad state, for that matter. And it's not a shot at anybody because I think everybody had that same mentality and I was just too young at the promoting part because I was always a wrestler before that. And I got, you know, I had been in about 10 years when we started training guys, and that was when I felt comfortable to where I had enough experience, especially with where we came up in the House of Pain where we were having matches all the time and had the experience to be able to, you know, give knowledge to younger people and explain to them how things are supposed to be done. But so I, I put that in the hands of Leslie and Tate on deciding my match with with uh, Jason Riggs, who ended up being Scott Titus, because that's who I wrestled on the first show for the, to decide the champion, and I wanted him to be the first champion. Like, so it was just a one-on-one -on -one match for the title. Yeah, it was just a one-on-one -on -one singles match, and you know we had had we pieced everybody 
that was newer together with the veteran guys. We had guys like Flex Phenom, we had guys like Adian, we had guys like obviously Leslie, Tate, myself. Um, Scott Fowler was on that first show. Uh, he was the doc at the time. Um, so we had we had a lot of guys that had been around for a while and had a lot of experience, especially that we all came up with just because I knew they, they could carry guys because that's if you were in the old House of Pain, you knew how to be a ring general just because you were in the ring all the time. Yeah, that period was known for one half was the solid workers. Yeah, but the other the other side was. <laughs> well, it was super, they had their struggles. It was super stiff and everything, and and <laughs> which that was kind of across the board because even the people that were more technical had to be stiff because the other half of the guys were super stiff and they weren't technical. So you had to you had to meet them in the middle, sort of. But uh, but yeah, like uh, like I said on that first show and that that main event, I. I was determined, like I fought with those guys and not in a, like in a screaming way, but like they were both like, we have to put on you first because we have to give the league credibility. And I'm, I'm, when it comes to any of that stuff, I always hate when people try to look at me like I'm somebody special or whatever. Like I had done what I did and I'm proud of it. But at the same time, like that league shouldn't, in my eyes, shouldn't have been rested on my shoulders just because it's our league. And, uh, and, and then I said, you guys decide what you want to do. I wanted him to have the title first because he was the young, smart-ass-looking kid, and I liked the idea of a heel champion to start, or period, just because, to me, fans are way more behind a babyface chasing after a heel champion than, yeah. than the babyface champion going out and just repeatedly. Obviously, work with Hogan and different guys, but to me, it almost phones it in a lot of times unless yeah. the buildup makes it obvious that it's going to change as per the other side you can have a heel champion, and every time he goes to the ring, you think he's going to lose. Yeah, so I, I was a big fan of that, especially at that time. And then, you know, of course, now I look back on it, and I have a completely different perspective just from having to deal with all the chaos. Uh, now, how many times did you hold the elite title? Uh, I had it three times. And uh, that first time, we just basically got it, and I was already trying to look for the way to get it off of me as soon mm-hmm. as I could, and, which happened on our fourth show. And, uh, you know, obviously there was a there was a lot of things like our initial training center, that huge building that had those big crowds, that building had burned down. So then we had to scramble because we had a show like two weeks later and our ring burnt. And yeah, we had what a, a mysterious fire that was. There was a lot of that, yeah. It, well, there was one and it didn't completely take the building out. And, of course, everything... There was more than one? Yeah, there was a, there was a fire that had happened. And then we basically... They, and that one was an electrical fire because they found an outlet that was behind a couch that was on the two-story side of mm. the auction house. And somehow something caught behind the couch and the couch had burned. I'm not saying that that was on purpose in a failed attempt at whatever it may have been. But then the other one was, this would have been, and the guy that owned the auction house, who, again, that's a story that anybody could look into and say, call shenanigans, but... Um, he put a lot of money into restoring the building to make it just for us, and we were going to lease it. So he had these huge garage doors that he had, and, I mean, he was showing the invoices on those, and they were like twelve grand a piece. He wow. had two huge ones. I mean, they were like 15, 20-foot-high garage doors that would open up. We had a small two-story. The bottom was a concession stand. Like, it was all the pieces of the puzzle came together that he was in our corner to make this what he had seen us have twice there already. And then Not, not a bad guy to have in your pocket. <laughs> until uh, it seemed that it was a purposeful fire, whether it was him or whether it was someone else that came in and did it. But People do love insurance money. Yeah, and 
and there's a, there was a, I don't know all the details to it. I've talked to the local fire departments that we've ran over the years since then, and they were saying that when they responded to that, that there were uh, different receptacles that had obviously were put in a position to where it would start a fire. Whether hmm. it was again, whether it was him, whether it was someone else, I have no they idea. They said, "Brother, so. this was arson." But uh, <laughs> but that time took the whole building to the ground, and Damn. and uh, including the two rings we had a. Our initial ring that we did the first two shows in was a an all wood ring except for the steel posts in the corner. Everything else was wood, uh, except for the ropes, obviously. But like it was a wood frame, everything. And then um, we had a a ring similar to the one we have here in the training center that was a high spots ring. Both of those. Was there any piece of you that was like, "Well, fuck this. I'm not like this was horrible. Like yeah, this sucks. I'm moving on." It well, it was weird because like we said, we had. Uh, we had Tommy Dreamer coming in for that show because that second show we had Hacksaw Jim Duggan as like our headliner. And then we had Tommy Dreamer coming in for the third one and the, and the, the whole building burnt to the ground like two weeks before. So we scrambled and it may have been slightly more than that. It may have been like three weeks. and uh, But everything was already booked and tickets sold and everything for it. And um, we lost both rings. And the, the metal ring, you wouldn't think, but the steel rails that crisscross underneath the boards was all the way to the ground. Like, it melted all the way to the ground, so it was so hot. Hmm. And the ropes were completely sagged all the way to the ground. The poles were leaning. It was it was a skeleton of what you would think a wrestling ring would be. So we're just sitting there, and it's just a pile of ash. Like, the building was completely gone. It was just ash. And then there was just this skeleton of a ring in the middle. It was, like, the most horrible sight for a wrestling fan you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. I'm just sitting on the steps, and the, and the ring steps we have right here at the ring is the only thing left from that building. And they were just steel, and they were just sitting there. And I'm, I was sitting on them with all the skeleton. I sat there for... I don't know, an hour, two hours or something. I'm just sitting there. And there's just smoldering shit everywhere. And then Tate comes over and I was like, well, I guess this is it. And he was like, well, I have an idea. And then he pitched about just basically pulling our resources together and getting another ring. If we can just get one that was already built instead of having it custom or anything. So we ended up getting the ring that we're sitting in now. And, uh, and we managed to get it. Like we paid extra to get it express delivered to us and all that stuff. Then we went and got the boards and did who'd, all you, that. who'd you get it from monster? It, it was high spots. High yeah. spots. Okay. Yeah. That was the second high spots ring. So by this point, the first ring that we got was, like I said, it was, uh, it was Eddie Gilbert's ring from way back when allegedly. And, uh, and it was all wood frame and everything that we had like, I think we had like 2,500 bucks in buying that. And then each one of these were like six grand or whatever it was. So, I mean, we were, 15 grand in, in the hole now on rings. <laughs> and we had run two shows. But we did get that ring just in time. It got here a couple days before that show. And we, we did all the, the re-advertising to make sure we got the word out that it was different. And we got uh, Potomac State College, which, you know, like I said, Dick Herikoff had run there before and, and was universally always successful up there. It was a good market. And, and we talked to the college, had, you know, one of the sports teams up there did the concessions. So we had an in there. Because we had a lot of people that was coming to. It ended up being a great success. And then from there, we're like, okay, we just need to start running other venues. We'll look for a training center down the road. And then we, we had a little pause in the training center for probably, uh, two, three years maybe. And uh, But, yeah, and then we were off and running as a league. And then as we put the pen in the training center until we came back, and uh, that was kind of where we were with that. And well, one more thing about the training school here. Why Kaiser? Kaiser has one of the richest in the area – histories and especially for us because you know like i said with dick karakoff we were coming to, to nwl wrestling shows national wrestling alliance shows when we were kids like teenagers yeah. 
And, you know, we saw some huge names and everything coming in there. And, I mean, I, I remember being like 13, 14 years old coming to these shows. And then I was like, well, this is great. And then I was like 17, I, I want to say 16 turned 17, in like 97. I just graduated high school and uh, saw an NWL show. And it, it, it was Bob Starr and John Rambo in a cage. It was a double cage. And then it was uh, Shane Shadows and Switchblade versus the Grungers, Skank and Gutterboy. And we watched that show, and Leslie Leatherman was there. I mean, we knew him at that time, and uh, but like, you know, like you you didn't grow up with Leslie. No, he's significantly older. Not really significant. He's He's significant. He's like seven years older than I. (laughs) He's like you'd be surprised. Uh, He was actually my boss when I got I got a work permit when I was fourteen. Cool boss. He was a crew leader. Hmm. He was kind of an asshole. Okay, I can see that. (laughs) Well, he was twenty one. I was fourteen. But like, you know, you show up on a Monday when you're twenty one. Your boss is. 21 and in college so he's not the happiest guy in the world at six o'clock in the morning because you have to go cut brush or whatever so anyway <laughs> um but you know immediately we found out that we were wrestling fans so then we kind of clicked but uh so he was at that show and i didn't even realize it at the time and me and my brother were there because we went to all of them up there and um and we actually talked to neil superior that night but it but it was a great show and then like i said those double cage matches and i was like that's where i was like i went from I love coming to these shows and watching it because it's like you're seeing wrestling live to I want to do this because I'm almost 18. And uh, and then, you know, life happened for like a couple years. But then when I was like nine, uh, 19, almost turned 20, that's whenever Tate caught our bluff and signed us up. <laughs> All three of us. Because we had talked about it. and was like, hey, we should go down there and do that sometime. Like they advertise the training center every time we go down. Tate has. He's always been a get up and go, go get at it kind he, of guy. He absolutely is. If there was... If there's anybody you want to be around, it's him. Yeah. And uh, because, I mean, I can't say it enough. We we call it, we say it all the time. It's been 25 years, and we still sit there and say, take Carter Bluff about wrestling. <laughs> if not, he and I'd be sitting there watching TV wrestling going, I could have done that. I could have done that. Like, And he called our bluff when we were you know young and full of piss and vinegar, and, and we had to show up and, and put our ass where our mouth was kind of thing but we did it but yeah like when you when i look at tate and obviously you know as brothers like i've known him my whole life like he wanted to be a stand-up comedian he does it he wanted a comic store he got to it he Mm -hmm. wanted to open a pizza shop he's got one he wanted to be a wrestler he did that he wanted to be a wrestling promoter he's been one of the most successful ones i've ever seen on the east coast yeah definitely one of the most inspirational people i know loving father dedicated husband Yeah. yeah i mean like you Really, anything that he ever sets a goal for, he goes after it. And it's not like they're, you know, he doesn't get wealthy off of them, but he goes after everything he wants to do. He never has. And it's just like the training center. Like, I want to do the training center, teach guys how to wrestle. He wanted to do a show, and then once he got off the ground, it was like, okay, well, it's kind of hard to argue with you whenever yeah. we got four. When you can smell people. the money in the air. Yeah, and, like, when we <laughs> saw that, it was like, wow, there's, there's some money to be made. Like, this mm-hmm. is a supplemental income. And then some, you know, because we always tried to pay everybody, even from the very start, even the young guys, we would try to take care of as much as we could. Because he and I, to this day, every show we ever run, we're the last one to take a dollar out of the pot. Um, uh, one of the biggest, arguably, if not the biggest event that you guys ever did was uh, uh, whenever you guys did the Kurt Angle deal. Was was Ric Flair on that same one, Terry no, Funk? That, that was a different Jesus one. That, that God, was the year so before. Yeah. There's, you guys have put out a couple, like, super shows. They, yeah, they were huge. The 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 one with Flair and, and there were so many people on that show. It was a it was a collaboration with Big Time Wrestling, and uh, it was a four night loop. Where at? Um, where did they catch you? One was at Kaiser High School. Kaiser. Then that's where we were, and then 
The next night was in Altoona at the, the ah, Jaffa Mosque. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was two other ones. One was in, I want to say it's, it was down in Maryland, maybe around Bethesda. Did you do something past Kaiser? Were you dealing with... I did Kaiser. and Well, we rented our ring to them all four nights. Oh. Um, my day job wouldn't allow me to do the, the last two of the four. So I did the, the crazy match with Gallows in the main event of the first night. And, and there was just such a great roster there. And we kind of split it. Like uh, Terry Funk and Ric Flair were on that. Mickey James, uh, Matt Hardy, Gallows, obviously. Um, the Patriot. Uh, Sanjay Dutt, I believe, was on that card. I'm trying to think. Uh, Carlito was on that. Chris Masters was on that. And then there were some big-time guys that had come down. And then, well, obviously, all of our league guys. So The was, rinky-dink Kaiser, West Virginia. That's yeah, huge. Yeah. And luckily, <laughs> uh, the, the new Kaiser High School gym is like a college basketball gym. It's got a huge scoreboard over top of the thing hanging from the ceiling. And, and it, I mean, it seats like 1,500 people or something. I think we ended up getting like 1,300 people in there, which was unbelievable. And, uh, and you know, we really pushed the, the local promotion. And then Big Time had sent some – some some of their advertising down as well. Um, we collaborated on the on the card to make sure that it was mix and match. They had a handful of guys. Who's their promoter? Um, oh, Terry Allen and oh, what's I? His name's escaping me right now. Oh, Steve Perkins. Okay, and, I've uh, never he- heard of either of those guys. He uh, Steve Perkins was. He was a promoter. He was not a wrestler or booker. Mm-hmm. He, um, but he runs he runs big shows, big budgeted shows. Gets a lot of names in. Um, there was a couple of little bumps in the road along the way, but that's you're going to have that at any time. Whenever you get two collaborating organizations working together. Um, yeah, whenever I first started wrestling, there was a guy who I guess he was in the Navy, um, but he he just had a bunch of money and after he retired he loved pro wrestling so he just yeah. put on legend shows on like navy bases and stuff yeah and i i loved i did one it was funny whenever i first started i was in the business like six months and rambo said he got a it was george south i think is the one that was actually running nice. the show and it was in bethesda and on the military base the naval base or whatever down in, in uh no so it wasn't a rambo was production no it, he huh. just got he got a call saying he needed some talent, basically. Oh. And they had a few names there, which was awesome, because at that time, I was, I was super young. Like, I may, it may have been more like four months, because uh, we were already doing NWL shows by like six or seven months. But, but like, so this Beaver, was a big deal. Yeah, like, it was huge. And, and, and uh, it was me and, and Scott Fowler against Gutterboy and Rambo in a tag match. And there was a, a few group matches just because it was a lot of people. But there was only a handful of guys from like, the House of Pain but like Brutus Beefcake was on the card, Greg Valentine was on the card, Marty Janetti, and I was like, "This is awesome." Bob Starr was there, and I can't remember if he was doing Doink or if he was just doing like Playboy Bob Starr. But uh, that was one of the first times I met Bob. But yeah, I mean, it was a great card. Like it was, it was a fun show. I mean, our match was lower on the card just because it was, you know, we were brand new. Yeah, I mean, you you uh, share a lot of similar experiences with Tate. I know Tate said on the show that you know he found himself in a locker room bumping elbows, King Kong Bunny, Jerry Lawler. Oh it yeah, was just I mean, like wow, we're actually like doing this. Yeah, it was crazy. Like one of our first NWL shows, me and Leatherman are sitting there, and Leatherman's Leatherman's a big mark. I mean, we're all, <laughs> we're all marks, but he can't hide it as well as most people. But like, especially then, because it, it was kind of surreal because you're thinking, okay, we'll get in the ring, and we're getting in the ring with like guys that you know, or your age, or I've never really done, they have no credibility as far as like, 
I've never been on TV. And at that, that time, you know, that was, it was like, okay, we're, we're kind of playing wrestler maybe because we're just learning. And then the first time we're in one of those locker rooms, we're looking around and Leatherman's like, you got to be shitting me. And he's like whispering in my ear. And it's like, uh, Honky Tonk Man's there. The Rock and Roll Express is there. Samu's there. King Kong Bundy. All these, and Snooka, they're all in the same locker room. And, uh, and then there was a, I guess what you would call a little person match now, midget match sure. back then. Yeah. And, uh, and then there was like four or five of us that were just plugged into some matches with, with the names. And it was like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, this is my childhood <laughs> and me. Why, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> but, but it was great. It was uh, that weekend. Uh, he and I were, well, he worked at Honky Tonk Man. And I worked uh, the Patriot for the first time. And Tom then, Brandy. Yep. Yeah. And, then, uh, and then we worked the Rock and Roll Express the next night. And Mount and Mount Savage. Wow. And that, that was down at Fort Detrick on the on the base down there. And uh, when he worked Honky and I worked Tom. Did then, uh, Ricky Morton throw you an arm drag? No, that's bullshit. <laughs> it was actually a pretty solid match, but like we were so new, like we didn't really have gear or anything. Hmm. Like um, we kind of started off with like the almost the Raven look with like the blue jean shorts, black boots, and then like t-shirts that said Highland and then we had printed or whatever. And they were yeah. Like, whenever you look at early pictures of Jake the Machine Davis, yeah. you see a lot of blue jeans in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then it was, and it was. I mean, we were probably in it a year, year and a half. What was up with the gloves? You would wear gloves too. Um, I was pretty snug. You look like a street fighter. Well, and I and I I love martial arts. I love shoot fighting, all that stuff. Uh, my whole life, like since I was a young teenager, and uh, and you know, my dad was was uh, pretty heavy in the martial arts in his younger years, hmm. and then I just liked the physicality of it all. But then it was like, well, I wanted the look. And I also, because I love, that was right around the time you first started seeing like Ken Shamrock and okay. guys in like Pancrase that had the gloves, like the, the yeah. fingerless shoot fight gloves yeah. that ended up being the, the UFC gloves. But at that time, you, you yeah, could even find Tank those Abbott. gloves. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it was like, I got a pair of those and then uh, I liked the look of it and I could, I felt like I could throw my punches harder. If you asked Leatherman, he was like, he thought he could throw his fists as hard as he wanted because he had these padded gloves. It didn't, didn't help at all. It just kept his hands from breaking. I'm like, well, that's kind of what it's for. And then he's like, then that son of a bitch thought that he could take them off and just start taping his hands. I was like, well, I mean, it, it, it worked, but everybody down there was snug, so it is what it is. A lot of guys had to t- uh, learn how to do their punches by punching uh, you know, a center block wall. Did you ever do stuff like that? Yeah. Um, when I started, I would go to the ring post and throw them at the post. That's and a good I, spot, I always yeah. just told myself, like, if I can hear it, but it doesn't hurt, it's not going to hurt somebody, but yeah. it's going to make contact. And my, my biggest thing, which is probably far beyond where I was when I first started in the thought process, was if I can watch my matches in slow motion and not find any holes, I was good. Like So the stuff early on was pretty snug just because I, I didn't want any space. I didn't want to miss anything. So I was laying it in, and I slowly was able to, you know, polish it up so to speak so it wasn't as snug and then you know i guess i got that mystique and then you know we're going like this the shoot fight thing that john had implemented and all that and that was a fun thing but but yeah all that stuff back then do you agree like, with stuff like that blurring the lines you know pro wrestling is pro wrestling you know I do, but then I, you start blurring the lines like, yeah. oh, but these fights are real well and, and long before like mma and ufc and stuff like that became mainstream yeah. It was such an underground thing, but I'm... If it sells tickets, then it's worth it. Yeah, and as far as like, <laughs> as far as like the pro wrestling, I am, I'm a firm believer that everybody that gets in this ring should know how to handle themselves one yeah. way or the other. I'm not saying you need to be a boxer. I'm not saying you need to be like a Muay Thai guy 
But like, you should always know that if anyone in that audience decided to break the plane of that bottom rope, you're not going to look bad or, or oh get hurt yeah. because of a fan. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, there's so much safety issues in here in the ring, doing the moves with guys, accidents happen. But like, when it comes to getting heat, you got to know that you can back it up. I mean, we had it so many times. And I, especially when I was young and I was a little meaner, I'm a little domesticated because I had you know, <laughs> kids, daughters, all that. And uh, so having, now, having, having daughters does make you a little softer. It does. It kind of brings you, I mean, like there's two sides of the coin because like, especially once they got into like their teen years and now they're in their twenties and like, even now I'll go to Walmart with one of them and I'm like, eyes in your own paper, brother, what's your problem? <laughs> like, I, I don't have, I got a pretty short fuse when it comes to them. But like, you know, back in the day I was, I was fairly certain that, I could handle myself pretty good because I had spent my whole life since preteens understanding how to. Now, did you ever get your ass kicked? No. You've never gotten your ass no. kicked your whole life. I um, feel like as a person, you learn a lot after I've, you get I your mean, ass kicked. I mean, I've gotten beat up way more in the wrestling ring, obviously. Okay. Um, and I had been in a lot of scraps and stuff, but I was, uh, I was, I don't know how you'd work. I was fairly mean and. I just understood. Leatherman said it great one time, and it was kind of funny because it's a story for another time. It was in a bar setting, but um, he said some people can fight and some people will fight. (laughs) And and I was just one of those people that, like, I just had the switch as soon as I realized. My my dad, God rest his soul, just passed away on Friday, told me when I was young, I was like 10, he said, if you can reach someone, they can reach you. So reach them first. Don't ever, ah. don't ever let somebody get close enough to you to reach you without taking care of it. Hmm. Kind of reminds me and of the old Cobra Kai: Strike hard, strike first. Yeah, and yeah. it. I mean, it, and like that's a way to live your life because you know, anytime you feel like somebody's got that look in their eye or whatever, like you yeah. need to be ready to go. And I yeah. was always just ready to go. I could just flip the switch and do it. But like even in school and stuff, which I wasn't, I did, I never looked for it. I always, I hated bullies. That yeah, kind of you don't stuff. strike me as the kind of guy who's fucking looking for that. No, I, I hate drama. Like, across the board in every aspect you of You hate it so much that if, if, if they bring it to your doorstep, yes. you're going to fuck them up. I <laughs> absolutely despise drama. And it's not even like a, I'm a tough guy or anything like that. I was just, I was always very much like, as soon as I flip the switch, I'm just going to get it over with and get it done right now. And most people don't have that. Like, a lot uh-huh. of people don't have Unless they've trained in something. To get that mentality, a lot of people don't have that kind of killer instinct, and then finish on, the fight. Yeah, and I'm I'm just like like when I was in even middle school, I I got in a fight right in the middle of a math class one time, hmm. and uh, who threw the first punch? Well, it, it's a middle school fight, so it sounds <laughs> it sounds like it's going to be uh, worse than it is, but like it was one of these like shoving like try to shoulder me as I was walking in and try to be, and he was. Not known for being the best kid, getting in trouble, all that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. His name was Billy Thompson. And uh, so I grabbed him and gave him like a one-arm shove because he did like the shoulder out of my way kind of thing. Yeah. And I shoved him, he went down into his seat, like, you know, the desk that's hooked to the chair. As soon as he fell down, he kicked his leg and kicked me in the knee and locked my knee out. Ooh. And, you know, you know, I'm kids. I mean, it hurt, but like it scared me because I thought he'd snap my knee. Yeah. And he popped up and then I just... You know, wailed on him a couple times, hit him about three times. See red? He ended up go down. Yeah, I was even then. I it was seventh grade, and uh, he went down on the ground. And the math teacher, who was a pretty big dude, uh, Mr. King was his name, and he come up and bear hugged me from behind, wrapped wow. his arms around me, 
And, uh, you know, I struggled to get off because I thought it was like one of his buddies or something. I, <laughs> I didn't know, you know. But, uh, and then, you know, it was like detentions and all that kind of stuff. But that was like the first time that ever happened. I didn't have a lot of those things. It doesn't take you long in like, you know, school is like as soon as certain people get a certain mystique or whatever or reputation, then people just don't really mess with it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty universal. I was, uh, I didn't like the fighting stuff or anything. This is kind of more long-winded than I wanted it to be, but. But I didn't like bullies, and I don't now. Like, I, I hate that stuff. So if I saw, so you know, like nowadays, everybody's standing there just filming, like, somebody getting picked yeah. on or a fight or whatever. And I was like, there's no way that guy can do anything. This guy's just exploiting him because he's getting all the attention. He's going to rub this kid up. So I'm like, okay, now I'm coming after you and make you stop or beat the shit out of you while they get to watch it. Um, there, was a, there was a kid, real quick, there was a kid one time that, I were in the locker room after a gym class, and he, he, you know, the kid that always got picked on. I don't want to say his name in case somebody knows him. And but he he uh, took his book bag and dumped it out all over the place. It was like five minutes before the class was over in the locker room. So I of course saw it, and then he's like, you know, he tried to reach down to pick his stuff up, and then he like knees him and knocks him over on Ooh. his ass, and like he's just you know just senseless bullshit. And I I just started seeing red, so I went over and kind of grabbed him by the face, and I told him that he's going to pick up the kid's stuff. So he had to pick it all up. I said, I'll, I'll, you know, basically blah, 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 shit talk. I said, this yeah. is what I'm going to do to you if you don't pick this up. Yeah. So he hurries up and just starts stuffing it in his book bag or whatever. So as soon as he did, I said, now give it to him. And then he did it. And I went, now dump yours out. And he looked at me. He was like, I'm not doing that. I said, oh, yeah. well, you he can, has a line. Yeah. You can dump your book bag out right now or I will beat the shit out of you in front of everyone. And of course, you know, everybody's packed around. There's like 50 people standing there. Yeah. And, uh, so he had to stand there and like look at me like, <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. You're going to get it. And then he dumped his shit out on the thing and then the bell rang for the class. To be <laughs> so I just kind of went, there you go. And then I just walked away and everybody's just like, oh my yeah. God. But anyway. His reputation took, took a big yeah, hit that, and day. that Yeah, I just, yeah. It, again, we went down that rabbit hole a little more. I, I, I don't ever act like a tough person. No, that's cool um, though. Um, like, so finding yourself in the ring and stuff like that. Um, I know that anybody that personally knew you, you know, they're not going to try to take that step towards you. But getting into the ring with, you know, you're on the road, you're making the independence. Did you ever find yourself in the ring with somebody who did not know who you were and tried to test you? Did that ever happen? Um, not, not really, because I, I was so snug. The thing about the House of Pain that there was an intimidation factor back then. Because when you train there and you're doing that all the time, you're used to having hands on people. It's almost like training, like if you're in a grappling, you know, match or, or whatever, and somebody doesn't. Um, when you're used to going hard like that, laying everything in solid, when there's people that are used to working light, as soon as you get in there and you start doing it, because I always told people beforehand, like, I work snug, feel free to lay it in as hard as you want, hard and safe places, that's the way I work, that's, you're welcome to work me like that. And I always told everybody that when we went elsewhere, especially in the earlier days where we were still transitioning from that's the way everybody works to now you kind of got to go out and you know make a name for yourself outside of that. And not everybody works the same, so you got to kind of adapt. But um, so I would explain that to them. So whenever I would get a hold of people, and and I never really had that that kind of thing. I always had a, a fairly good because it didn't take long. Because as soon as somebody would get, I felt either sloppy or they were trying to take too much or take liberties, I could, I would just take a hold and put them down and hold them there. And then, Hey, calm down, brother. Yeah, hey, you slow you it down. Like, say something. Yeah. And you can usually, people can tell when they get shut down a little bit that they can't go, they can't try to test it. Um, 
There was two guys one time me and Leatherman were working a tag match with. Rocco Murder and Mark Manson, maybe? Rocco Murder strikes he, a big... He was kind of a heavier set guy. He'd only come in a, a few times, but... I guess they were. They thought they were going to try to make some video package for like ECW, and it was okay. like early. It was like two thousand. He would try to say he was like an Akito guy or something. And, you know, he could barely walk because he was you know low center of gravity, heavy person. Okay, nothing against that, but yeah. you know, he, from looking at him, he didn't look like he's going to be tossing people around or whatever. So then they get in there and they basically wanted to make their own finish and try to put me in a hole. And was like, no. And then it kind of became a a bit of a grappling match. And I told Mike Demuzio was the referee. I said. Um, call for a DQ, and because uh, I just held him and had him held it for the five. I said, count to five and call a DQ. So we wow, get to the back. cool. And then I basically got to the back and said, at that time I was the shoot champion for that shoot thing that he was doing, and I was a, a tag team champion. And, I, you know, I just said, what the hell are you guys doing? And they're like, we're trying to do a video package or something. I said, I don't give a shit about what you're trying to do. Like, that's not the finish. And, and Whoever know, we're in the ring with, we need to fuck them like, up. <laughs> you don't ever try to take a hold and then force me to tap because you want to try to shoot a finish so you can get a video package. That's not how we do things. And, like, of course, everybody's – we're all a team. And then there was guys coming in, like those guys that came in for a cup of coffee. And it was like, you don't have a leg to stand on here. Like, yeah. And, but that was one of the only times that anybody really ever got out of line like that, with us anyway. Because you had Leatherman, who was a big dude, and, and, and I was fairly established. So people didn't really – but we're, we were so easy to work with, too. I mean, like, our goal was we'll get our opponents over every time. And then, you know, you never had, like, the – I see it even today where people are so worried about getting their shit in, and they're so worried about not looking good or not getting this, that, or the other, and it's like, that doesn't matter. You don't understand, like – Wins and losses. Don't and it's a good matter. way to get, get uh, hurt too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as soon as people are jockeying to see who can get all their stuff in, then you're going to have mistakes. You're going to have things looking sloppy. People aren't going to get their money's worth whenever the guys are in business for themselves. Yeah. We were always like, let's shine our opponents up. Doesn't matter, heel baby. It doesn't matter. And then ultimately, it ended up being a very good match. And, and most of the time, it was fifty-fifty or more in our favor, just because we were so giving initially and then it ended up working back and then ultimately we got such a good reputation because we were easy to work with and we were we could get people over we didn't mind getting people over because a lot of people would want to argue about who was doing what or yeah you know and the worst thing in the world is when people you can see a difference in effort depending on whether they were over. Oh. that's one of my big pet peeves too but like that was just not our mentality and Leatherman was a, a fairly mature guy because he was like, like I said, he was like 26, 27 when he started. So he was like a, already had a career and like, you know, he was established grown man. And then he had a bunch of guys that were younger like I was. So it was like, we're still kind of learning how to be men. And, and he's like dealing with people like he's the counselor of the locker room. Of course, he's the most lovable guy in the world too. So that always helped. Uh, one interesting aspect of pro wrestling I really enjoyed. My first show that I showed up at CPW to start my first day of training, uh, the Crowd started coming in. There was maybe 30, 40 fans. And uh, uh, two of the fans were in the front row, and it was both of them were in wheelchairs. And uh, they were wearing, they were holding a sign that said, We're spending our honeymoon at CPW. And I was <laughs> like, I love this. I'm so glad this is my first day. And uh, I just thought, um, damn, I was totally going somewhere. What with year him. was that? That, that was 06. Yeah, we would have been there at that time. 
time. Well, I know you did the oh, you guys were, that time yeah. and that first time. You guys were kind of uh, trading off the heavyweight championship. Yeah. yeah, we were going hot and heavy at that point. That was that was fun. I love CPW, especially when they're doing the showdown show and all that because it was like it was a different different atmosphere than I was used to because even when we went out on the road and stuff, nobody was doing like it, that was like the kind of the infancy of like internet TV and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that throwdown or the the showdown thing that they did, it was cool because you get there and you had to get your gear and you had to, and you had to uh, do promos as soon as you got there for whatever your match was that night. And then you had to do your match. And as soon as you're done your match, you had to go right to a room to do promos, like post promos for either the next show or your reaction to what just happened in the ring. So you, you, you had a job to do from the moment you get there until you leave. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. But like so many places that you would go to, it, it wasn't like that. You show up, you sit around for two hours, bored out of your mind, or just bullshitting in the locker room, and then go do your fifteen minute match or whatever, or ten minute or whatever it is, and then you come back and you either watch the rest of the matches or you change and sneak out. I was never a sneak out guy, but like that was kind of what it was. That as soon as you got there, you were working the whole time you were there in a fun way, but yeah. it was. And then, you know, you get to see, and not not every match you had was on the episodes, but it was like, as soon as a new episode came out, I was the first one looking to see if anything I was a part of was out there or a promo leading to it or whatever. It was it was good because, I mean, I, you know, probably did 50 promos for various shows and, you know, maybe five of them made the show. But yeah. it was like, you got so much promo because it was, it was on camera. It wasn't something where it was in the ring where you say it one time and it's done. Like, if somebody screwed up and Leatherman was one of the best guys on the stick ever, and I just fed off oh, yeah. him. It was almost like, tell him, Hawk, and then I would just say a yeah. few things. <laughs> yeah. Especially because I was never a big talker guy. I was like the silent but violent guy. He was the I'll talk all night guy. And, dude, it was tough because you weren't just with Leslie. You were with Gino San Martino, who yeah. was a hell of a promo himself. Which, yeah, and, and that was fun. I loved having Gino. He's one of my favorite managers I've ever had. Yeah. But he did. He talked a lot. Of course, Leatherman talked, and and I just had to chime in at the end. But then when we got in the but any time that you talked though, because you weren't known as the talker, but yeah. you you know you weren't just you know yeah. I tried to just get to the point. I mean, I did, I didn't yeah. want to be too long winded because I knew that they could, so there was no reason for me to. And then later, I like especially when I broke off in the singles, I could like, especially as a heel, as a babyface. Yeah. I I never really liked being. You didn't like doing that babyface promo. Yeah, I mean, like I could, but like I I didn't try to change my my persona like my persona much whenever I was worried just because I let my style kind of dictate my persona. So when my promos, it was always like, this is where it's at. Like I'm bringing it to the ring and you're going to have to overcome it kind of thing. And uh, of course, like when I'd go to the ring and stuff, you know, I'd talk smack to the fans or whatever, but like generally in the promos, it didn't, it didn't turn the dial up too far. Like I was pretty much the same person all the time. It was like, I'm going to get in the ring, I'm going to stretch you, and there's nothing you can do about it. That was kind of what my deal was. It's almost like you want to be as real as possible. Like, on the other side of that coin, you got your brother who, he, he's got a mask on. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a psychotic character. He's all over the place. But then, you know, you look, you look at you, and you, you pretty much had the same gimmick your whole career. Almost my whole career, yeah. And, and you know, as I evolved as far as, like, adding certain moves and certain things, because I was significantly more athletic early in my career just because I was younger and healthier and, you know, everything. And then I got a little bit more of the brawling type because... Do you find a lot of inspiration from Stone Cold? Actually, not really. Really? I mean, yeah. Because you guys look similar. And, and which is funny. I, I started shaving my head when I was like a sophomore in high school. And, and I always just kind of 
had that. I think it's just the, the resting bitch face because <laughs> like, I always tell people when they're saying, why do you look so mean? You're walking in Walmart. I'm like, it's a natural muscle structure. So you can face. grow hair. I, I, def- I still have a full head of hair if I let it grow out. <laughs> wow. a decent hairline. And I would love to see that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was like early high school when I started shaving my head. and huh. uh, But yeah, um, I forget where we we're going with that. <laughs> yeah. but, but like I was basically the, the same character, like you said. I, yeah. I, I evolved over the years as far as like adding certain moves. But there was a lot of stuff. The, the, my biggest thing early on was that I didn't, I knew I couldn't be the best at one thing. Like, I wasn't going to have the best physique because you had mm-hmm. guys like Flex Phenol and guys like that that were shredded. I wasn't going to be the best technical guy. I wasn't going to be the, you know, big high-flying guy, like, the best at it. And I was, you know, I was, like, 235 when I started, but I got up to, like, 250 almost immediately within, you know, six months. And then I was basically over between 250 and 280 my whole career, for the most part, until the last couple of years, and then I got up close to 300. And uh, But my goal was to be good at everything so I could adapt to whoever my opponent was because there was and and whether we needed to go contrast like if there was a cruiserweight I obviously wasn't going to go flying off the top rope so I could be the power guy but then if I was working somebody who was bigger than me I could do like a dive out onto him or I could come off the top of the head bun or did you ever get to work a midget so we had an incident once with <laughs> bad boy buck an incident <laughs> <laughs> but I, I never actually worked a, a, a match with him we were in he a, was a part of the shoot fights, wasn't he? <laughs> no, but it was pretty fun. At the time, I'll try to wrap it into a nice little ball real quick. But uh, So me, Leslie, and Flex and Adian, Flex Phenom and Adian, um, Adian was a great technical wrestler. He was like the guy that I learned the most from early on, just as timing and taking your time and just learning how to work. He was just so good. And um, to this day, he's one of the best people I had ever wrestled. But the four of us, we turned heel, and the four of us just basically kind of shot our angle of being a team together because we had, you know, we had been feuding, and then we just turned heel, and we just started hanging out, and we started making like our own shirts, calling ourselves the Fantastic Four. Yeah, Fantastic Four. And uh, which you know is blatantly ripped off of, <laughs> of Fantastic yeah. Four. Yeah, yeah. Well, at that same time, you had this guy in a mask called Pirate of the Caribbean. There was a number of that's you true. Know. <laughs> so. It, 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 so we kind of threw that that gimmick together, and it lasted for a little while. It was, it was just it was just fun because we were doing shows all the time. We were doing Tuesdays, some Fridays and Saturdays. So it was like we were every couple of days we were in the ring. So like, and we did battle royals every show, and some of them you were just out there until you wanted to leave. So like some of those yeah. battle royals would legit be an hour. I'm not even kidding. And so of course we would always make it in to see who could stay in the longest. So we we're you know it always come down to the same group of people. That's so interesting because a lot of guys are like, I'm getting the fuck out as soon as I get in. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> Which I looked at it from like even when I was young and and we were allowed to get in because we had just started. I was like, I can get my hands on every person all the way up the roster to the main event guy. Yeah. Whereas it might be, I may never get to the main event to wrestle this guy or that guy. That's how I but look. If I can it. get in there and get to them and try to hit them with a shot, they'll turn around and hit me with a shot. I'd specifically now go. We're for acquainted. Them. Like yeah, Snatch Haggis, I know they're not going to book us one on one. I'm going <laughs> to fucking. <laughs> <laughs> There's a name from the past. But yeah, I mean, like, and I'd look at, I tell guys that now, like, we, we don't do a lot of battle rules on our shows. Sometimes we do, but um, more like. You want them to mean something. But yeah, every time, and it's like, Man, if you can get hands on somebody that you may never, for whatever reason, whether it's a, a gimmick difference or whether it's, you know, seniority or whatever, the hierarchy of wrestling, like, you may never get a chance to wrestle that person. Why not go get hands on them and then get hit by them? And then when you're watching it later, you can say, yeah, that's the time that guy, 
you know, I worked with him and, and, uh, I, I always loved that. I did that from the beginning all the way to the end, because then whenever I got down the road and I was turned into kind of one of those senior guys, I would go to grab a hold of young guys that looked timid to even come over to like, I, there was times where like Leatherman and I would walk around and different places, like up in New, New Jersey and down in the Carolinas where if they didn't know you or we were bigger or we were laying our shit in some people just, you could just walk around and nobody would touch you. And there was like 15 people in there. It's like, I just want to start hitting everyone so they'll hit me back because I hate <laughs> Like, especially when we were still in the House of Pain where there was a new crop of young guys and we were like the guys that had been around forever and everybody was kind of scared. You didn't want to insult the, the senior guy or whatever. I was, I was never that That guy, was such so would, a big fear. I would immediately yeah. go to him. And, then, and that, that goes to a whole different you know, can of worms with uh, the hierarchies and the just people trying to treat people differently depending on where they are on the car and all that. I never. You, you must have done good business for yourself, though, because even with the higher hierarchy and the uh, temperature backstage, you were still finding yourself in the ring with guys like Jerry the King Lawler. Yeah. Yeah, which uh, – and that was, a, that was a good thing, too. The, the, we always prided ourselves because um, we would, we, we would have shows where, like, you do a barbed wire match on a Saturday, but that Friday before we'd work the Rock and Roll Express. And that was mm. the greatest analogy – we did that one time, and it was like we worked a weapons match with Samu and John on a Saturday, but we worked on a Friday night against the Rock and Roll Express one time. And I was like, if we can go from that yeah. southern style of you know spot wrestling and nice you know light work, everything like that, and then go into this you know blood and guts, beat the shit out of each other, get kicked in the face three times by both of them, and, <laughs> and you know you're you know and you're trading blows. And we worked all those guys the same. Like I worked everybody the same. Obviously you'll dial it back just a little bit with a guy like Ricky Martin. Yeah. Compared to like John. Yeah. But that's because Ricky Martin's not saying hit me harder. And John always did. And that was huh. like I always loved that. I, I was in the same way that I always treated everybody from like the newest rookie to like the name that showed up as far as like respect and everything. And I treated people in the ring the same way. Like, I would work them the same all the time. And people were scared of certain people. Like, like John is a great example. Like, everybody has a different relationship with him and have a different opinion of him. But, like, I worked him the same way I worked everybody. And everybody said I was snug. But he liked that. He didn't complain. He never complained to me once about being too snug. Because he laid his shit in. You know, he laid his shit in. But he, I think that he liked people that were safe laying their shit into him. And so when, like, he and I worked a lot, like, if if you look back through the annals of like you know title history, John didn't drop the belt to many people. There was a reason. There was some angle where the belt got taken off of him a lot of times. But I had probably four or five different times where he put me over for a belt, and that didn't ha- happen a lot. Like I mean, it happened a handful of times after we left, just because you know he was giving the rub to like some like Brandon Scott and some guys that were in way after us. But at that time, like he was pretty protective about when he was actually laying down. What's the story behind that? You, you're, so you spend all this time getting your grassroots in at the House of Pain, but then there comes a time for you to leave. What happened? What's the reason? Where'd you go? Um, so we had the NWL shows and the House of Pain shows going on, and we had kind of gone through the ranks because he had two different sets of titles for those two different leagues, and then obviously the House of Pain was the weekly, every week yeah. thing. And, but those t- titles would be defended on the other shows, so we had been around for a long time, and we had earned our stripes, and we had kind of gone through the gauntlet of those different championships and angles and everything. And then, you know, some people started to drop off a little bit. And the guys that we came up with, like like the Grungers and, and uh, you know, Flex had and Mor- kind of... Morgus the Maniac. Morgus the Maniac, I absolutely <laughs> love. But, but, yeah, he kind of dropped off. And there was, there was a, a lot of those guys, like uh, Slicky Boy was a guy that was there 
way back when. Then he came back, and we had good runs with guys like him and MOD, some bigger guys. There was bigger, stronger, snug guys. And then, and it was no fault of their own, but there was a, a wave of, of younger guys that came in, and they were like you see a lot now where there were a lot thinner guys that were small that like there's only so much we can do with them. Because, you know, we were at that time, we were still like going to the gym. I'm, you know, 290 pounds and I'm fairly in good shape. And, you know, we're snug and everything. And so you're going to break these kids if you're working the way we always work. And so, you know, we can dial it down. We can have some good matches. There was a couple of those kids that were pretty ballsy when it came to like, you know, doing some acrobatic stuff and different things. But it was just kind of one of those we were around for, I don't know, probably five, six years. And, like, we kind of did everything we could do. We ran back, like, John and Sam against me and Leatherman so many times. And, and you know, he'd bring names in and we would work them. But it was like, I don't like being the guy that we had to work the names every single time. It was great. It was fun. But it's like, now you feel like you're taking those spots away from guys that have kind of been milling there waiting for us to get the hell out of the way. Even though they're still good shows. Like, I just, I always felt like I don't need the spot whenever I can step aside and let somebody else move up. Because until we do, they can't. If that makes sense. Yeah. And it's like, we've gotten so much cool shit to do here, but now we're kind of in a thing where it's like, we, I felt kind of stagnant, like, because then the NWLs shows as far as like the names coming in kind of slowed down a little bit. There still was some, some shows coming in, but like Gallows was there and then he was, he had started elsewhere, but he was only like 18, but he had had a couple different doors that we could get our feet into. And I had to work scheduled thing where I couldn't make the Tuesdays anymore. So that made it difficult. And then, um, so then Leatherman was kind of like, he was still going, but then it was, he was kind of losing the the love of driving to and from two or three hour round trips by himself. And so he was just like, I need to step away because it's the same, you know, we got to the point where you're doing the same thing every gotcha. week. Every week. And, and I was just like, it's time for us to move on Man, and see what else is going on. And yeah. at that time, like, early on, there wasn't really – I mean, like, MCW was around and CPW was around, but I had no knowledge of it. And living in Cumberland my whole life and Kaiser being 25, 30 minutes away, for whatever reason, I just didn't get the memo that that, mm-hmm. that was happening. And and Shane had had, you know, Demolition Axe and all these different – Greg Valentine and all these people. And uh, so I didn't even know that was there at first. And then – I I basically had to take like a hiatus from it. I'd done a couple other shots elsewhere right after that um, on the weekends, and then I just kind of once Leatherman kind of pieced out, and then and then we just started taking bookings every weekend all over the place, and you know testing the waters, going like Carolinas, New Jersey, and Philly, and and stuff like that. So we just try to stay as busy as we could because we were so used to wrestling two or three times a week, and then on top of that, like I said, the Battle Royals every show, so you're getting five or six matches a week and a lot of ring time, like a lot of ring time. Cause we were also training too, at least once a week, most weeks. There for a period of time that you were kind of put into the group of like the John Rambo, Chucky Manson, blood, all these, like the guys who would do the ultra violent stuff. I'm not sure if you, yeah, I would probably say ultra violent whenever you're talking about yeah. those guys. Um, what, Made you go in that direction? Were you a fan of like the hardcore stuff before you got into it? Um, I wasn't particularly a fan of it. There was a there was a small group of people that would do it <laughs> and could do it. And Chucky never had any reservations about doing it. And John had a history of doing it for a long, long time, especially when you're talking about like blood and guts and stuff like that. And like I said, John was snug with everything. Um, he laid 
stuff in long before I ever got in the ring with him with like chairs and bar wire and different things like that. And then we kind of got into a, a little avenue there where the opportunities were there once he started running like the road house uh, house of pain shows because before it was the NWL shows, which a lot of those were in Maryland, which you couldn't do that stuff. And Pennsylvania wasn't really happy about it. And then later they ended up putting a kibosh on that with the blood and stuff. But for a couple of years, you could get away with it. And then, of course, West Virginia, there wasn't a lot of NWL shows that Dick was running because, you know, John was booking, but Dick was the promoter. He didn't run a lot of West Virginia. Yeah, you guys were in Martinsburg like every other month. Yeah, and but that wasn't until John started taking the House of Pain shows on the road. Mm. And uh, and that was under the, his banner. Like, Dick wasn't at the, the road shows, like at the Apollo Theater and the Armory in, in Martinsburg. And then we go to a couple other, like we come up to Kaiser and stuff. Sometimes he would be there, like if it was a pot state. Um, but John and I worked hardcore all over the place and Chucky, but the, the Apollo Theater was probably the go-to blood and guts venue. It was. Yeah. And, uh, and and I spilled a lot of blood there. But yeah, me, and it usually ended up being me, Chucky, and John in some aspect, whether it was a, a single, was a triple threat, or there was a fourth guy that was willing to do something, usually not willing to do it, but wanted to be in that match or whatever. Um, there wasn't a lot of other guys there, really, period, that would do it to that level. And the only barbed wire match I was ever in was at the Apollo yeah. with Rambo. And it's my favorite story to tell. Uh, I don't know if this has ever happened to you but or, or what your trick is, but uh, something happened to John where he went ahead and gigged his forehead and he needed the blood to start flowing. So he, he wanted me to punch him in the forehead. Yeah. And I just didn't understand. I was getting my uh, wires crossed. So he was like, punch me in the forehead. And so I gave him a working punch. I've always been light. Um, and he said, no, 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 no. He was like, I need the blood to go, like punch me. And I fucking punched John like hard yeah. in the forehead <laughs> and uh, crimson mask. He said, okay, that's good. That's good. Leave me alone. I'm selling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was always tricky too, because if you get in there with somebody that didn't understand all the things that go into that, if they're frantic about it or they're all over you or something, then bad yeah. things can really happen. If they're, they're on top of you while you're, you know, good color or whatever. But, um, I always loved working stuff like that with, with John and Chucky. Um, Chucky never complained either about that kind of stuff. Like as far as like laying your stuff in, I was always, I didn't, I was not a big fan or probably as much of a fan of like John and Chuck, Chucky in particular, but John, they would get color and, you know, be selling a lot and bleeding everywhere. And I was a little bit more, and then, then they'd start using the stuff. I was more of a, hmm navigate to the the weapons and then get there to you know be busted open or whatever and it needed to be a specific something or another and those guys were like blood and guts right out of the gate like they were like let's get in it and let's get bloody and let's get at it after that and i don't know if it was adrenaline hike that they that not that they needed because you know john's been doing it forever and, and chucky has too and uh and those guys never hesitated to do anything chairs and then barbed wire any of that kind of stuff I, I we just had different philosophies on how to get to it, and I was usually a little bit more into it. And then, you know, I, I wanted to kind of progressively use things in the order that things in brutality instead of getting brutalized at the beginning and then trying to like survive through it the rest of the match. I was more like, let's let's use a stick. Okay, let's get to a chair. Let's get to <laughs> hey, there's barbed wire on that rope. We'll use that, and then I'll land in tax, and then I'll you know whatever. And uh, so like. We had a neat 
kind of difference in philosophies, but then we kind of ended up getting to the same finish line. So it, it, it always worked. I loved working both those guys, and especially John, because like he did that with me whenever I had a chain match with him for the NWL title, which that was like a goal. I had told myself when I actually started training that show that I mentioned earlier that I went to when I was like 17 that had you know uh, John and Bob in the cage and and the Grungers in, in Blade and uh, and Shane Shadows. Like that was the show that made me want to be a wrestler, and I ended up getting to wrestle all those. I, didn't, I never got to wrestle Bob in a singles, but like I got to wrestle all those guys in matches, which was kind of like a bucket list goal thing from yeah. being the 17 year old me to being like a mid 20s me. And I'm like, I got to wrestle all those guys that made me want to wrestle. Like yeah. Those six guys made me want to actually go from like a fan to pursuing being a wrestler. And then I ended up getting to work them all and ended up leading with almost all of them. Yeah. <laughs> At some yeah. point or another. Yeah, no, uh, with me and my group of guys growing up, we, we grew up watching you and John and all those guys at the Apollo. Spent a lot of uh, money on you guys' merch and stuff like that. I don't know. Did you have a T-shirt? We, we did for a while. I had then, a Leslie shirt that actually said Leslie. I don't know. If, did you yeah. have any Jake shirts? No, uh, I did um, for a little while. It, it was funny, too. And I, I, I wasn't a guy that wanted to go out and, I don't know, whether I was a babyface or a heel. I, I did it for a while, and then I was... It was weird because, like, I wasn't particularly aggressive about, like, let me go see how many dollars I can put in my pocket tonight. Because, and that was the other thing with John is that after we got our certifications, like, in the first year or two or whatever, um, I always got paid. Like, people oh. bitch about John not paying guys. Yeah. I, like I said, everybody has their own relationship with John. Yeah. We, I always got paid. Um, unless it was a house of pain, like, the free shows because... There's no money flowing yeah. in. You can't flow money out. We, everybody knew that. It was a training show. Yeah. But anyway. If it makes sense, yeah. But like, I went through a little span there where, where I was doing, me and Leslie would do shirts, the high Omen shirts and stuff. And we sold them all like immediately. Like within two shows, we were going through like 50 of them. And I was like, well, that's pretty cool. And put the money in my pocket. And then I got kind of got, once we, we split for whatever angle. And then I, I did the Jake Davis shirts for a little while, and he did the Leslie shirts, and we're always on the opposite side of the room and all the shit that you do for kayfabe. But um, then I kind of got to where, like, I didn't like the fact that everybody saw me whenever they wanted. Like, you know, they'd see me come in, so then I started mm-hmm. sneaking in the back. And then they'd see me leave, and they want to stand there and talk and get me to sign stuff. And it's like That I means a lot to a fan, too. It does. Yeah. And I never minded um, signing things after the show, like when I was leaving, if they were still hanging around. But like I got to the point where I was just like, I don't want to go out during intermission. I don't want to hawk my stuff. I don't want to do all that. It had nothing to do with having the stuff made or worrying about the money. I just I wanted that mystique where when I went to the ring, that was the first time they saw me. Yeah. And then if they wanted to get something, an autograph, they had to find me outside. So that made them stay there and wait. And then yeah. hoping they saw me. And then if they did, you know, I never turned anybody down for an autograph if they asked for a picture or anything. Back then, people would have Polaroid cameras and shit. And I was like, Good deal, but I didn't charge anybody for any of that kind of stuff. Once I kind of got out of the groove of wanting to do the gimmick things, and we we I did fairly good with the gimmicks all the time. At one point, I even had the old Polaroid camera, and you know, five bucks for that. But nice. But I, I did sort of get out of that groove, and I really kind of got got the mystique where people like there'd be people coming back every show saying, "Hey, there's these people out here that want you to sign something." I'm like. You didn't. You never found me. Like, <laughs> and, and then what? What ended up happening is whenever I did start coming out to the ring, people were trying to get me to sign shit on my way to the ring, and like they're standing there, like sign this. On. And then it became oh, that's cool. More of like an event when I came out, and, and I mean, you know, again, it sounds like I'm like tooting my own horn, but 
my thought process was the less they see me, the more they want to see me. Yeah. Instead of me hanging out and, you know, uh, and you're a heel during this time, right? Yeah. And I, and then I, you know, I had, we kind of bounced back and forth a little bit, but usually it was a year or something between flip flopping. But I just, I, I, both ways, even as as a baby face, I just kind of got to where I, I didn't want, I didn't want fans to have access to me because then it meant more whenever I got to the ring and then they're just eyes glued because it's the only time they see me instead of, you know, walking around because they stood there for 10 minutes during intermission and talked to me about, you know, what their favorite restaurant TV is. And and then it became like we humanized me instead of me, you know, I was a machine. So I didn't want to be like standing there BSing with people and their kids because I'm supposed to be that guy that's just locked in on beating the shit out of somebody. Baby face or heel. So it ended up working and it ended up getting to where people tried to pursue me. I get like, even now I get messages like, hey, do you have a Jake Davis shirt coming out? <laughs> nice. I'm like, I haven't wrestled in 14 <laughs> months. Why would I have a Jake Davis shirt? <laughs> you could you can always buy an elite shirt if you want when we get another batch of them. But, but yeah. I, I really appreciate that so much because my favorite run I ever did was uh, Starlight Gaze with my tag partner, Tyler Caden. And one of the things he was known to do was during intermission, he's going out there. He's signing stuff. He's got merch. He's actually uh, trying to make some money. And I just, man... I was having so much fun, and it was we were heels at the end of the day. I took that approach. You did not see me. You did yeah. not see Travis before at intermission. You rare, you rarely saw me. You saw me whenever I was being a fucking asshole <laughs> in the ring, and then but slowly but surely, fans started cheering for Tyler little by little. Yeah. And then I was like, well, you just fucked yourself because now I have to turn on you, yeah. and you have to. And, it, and then it makes the angle hot. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Like this asshole won't even come out and sign for me, and he's out there every time. And and that's not a like my mentality was not a knock at anybody because I yeah. see all the, the the younger guys on our roster now, and they're out there with like these professional setups and these backdrops and all this merchandise. Gimmick tables have gotten advanced, and I yeah. I love it because I mean there there is money to be made, and and those guys are are making it, and it helps. I mean we always take care of the guys as good as we can. And I would dare say as good as any league you're going to find on the indies for the most part, especially for local guys that isn't doesn't have TV time and things like that. But yeah. but if they can put more money in their pocket, that's awesome to me too because you know th- it's a supplemental income when you're doing it right. You know, you, yeah. you look at a guy like Anthony Athens who is when you look at him when he started compared to now, like he's a star right now. Yeah, like, without a doubt, head to toe when he walks out, your eyes are on him until he leaves, and when he's in the ring, he's. He's carrying that. He busts his ass in the gym. You look over during intermission, and there's a freaking store of Anthony Athens over there, and you can have all this different, like, that. that's the way wrestling's supposed to be. Have you ever heard of the Dark Horses? I can't say that I have. Uh, TM, TMHK and Grizzly O. They're, they wrestle around here. They've wrestled around here about seven, eight years. Well, anyway, uh, I, went, I did a Tennessee trip with those guys like two years ago. And, uh, man, they walked out of the car with two, like, luggage bags full and that's and I was like, what the fuck are you taking into the building? And uh, it was their gimmicks. Like they had like cut out photos of themselves. Are those the Scottish guys? No. Who am I thinking of? You're thinking of the grimy Scots. I am thinking of the grimy Scots. But they wrestle mainly in EWA in Maryland. Okay. So. I, if I saw them, I'm like, I'm, I'm not very good with. I was anyway. so impressed though. They were young kids, and I was like, wow, you guys are fucking trying to do this right, and I really appreciate seeing that. Yeah, I do like, especially if if they get a good foundation of the in-ring part of it first, and yeah. then they go with that. I, we've had a lot. Oh of people, man, yeah. Whenever you have that flipped, somebody <laughs> has like a connection to a printing thing or something, and all of a sudden they got all the gear, and like they suck. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like they look like a million. Can you get dollars. in here and do a headlock right before you're selling hats? Like, I don't want to. Sound like a dick, but yeah, no, that's kind of the way it needs to. You're you're definitely putting the cart before the horse, but 
And as somebody who's running and shaping uh, uh, kids, the next kids who are going to be on the cards the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah, and that's like we've barely even talked about the training center that we've been sitting in for the last hour, <laughs> hour and 11 minutes. But, but uh, and, and that's kind of where it is with those guys. Like I, I'm, I'm so about trying to start them from the ground up and like baby step them. And we have a nice dynamic because uh, with Jason Raddis is one of the trainers here. Yeah. And we have every training we've had now, which has been, you know, it's been – three or four weeks since they started and we've had probably six or seven trainings i mean we're in here all the time pretty much and uh and i'm in here with all of them radats is in here with all of them we've had a lot of our our talented roster members that come in to work out with these kids that are brand new i mean these guys are in the first 10 hours of their trainings uh, now they're a little over that but um but they're in here doing the same stuff the same drills like even even my ass is over there with my braces on doing 100 squats at the end nice. of the practice and they're not as deep as they used to be, but I'm going. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, like, I love it because, like, it's refreshing the guys that are experienced and that have already been established that are holding titles in different places and, and doing all that. And then they're seeing guys coming up, and it's like my whole goal with that is, and it always was, even way back when, is trying to get guys to have new people to wrestle. And there's so many places, and I'm sure you've seen it whenever you go places where it's like if there's a new guy, they're getting hazed and they're getting – screwed with and guys are being dicks to them and telling them they can't sit here because this is where the pros do it or the vets. And I'm like, no, that's, that's not our atmosphere at all. Like you got Reggie Collins and Cisco and, and Athens and Radats and, and Shane Malice. All these guys have been in here in some of these trainings and those guys don't all get along all the time, you know, especially on the cards, like in front of the fans, but like everybody's in here. I mean, I had a video from one of the first trainings where they did a hundred squats and they're all doing it. We had like 15 people in here. And like there's barely room for everybody to fit, but they're all doing it. And it's like that's the atmosphere every wrestling training center should have. It's not the hierarchy stuff like I had mentioned earlier. But like why would you ever want somebody to quit? Like yeah. the days of give me all your money and then I'll make you quit because I'll hurt you or get somebody to, to try to run you off and then I don't have to deal with you anymore. It's like I want to get the next generation, like you said, of, of opponents for the guys we have now. Like, I had those guys when I was still active and wrestling these young guys. You know what I mean? It's just a revolving door. Yeah. yeah. If it's done right, it's a revolving door. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you know, some places you go and it's like they've, they've locked that door so nobody else can come in because everybody's worried about their spot on a show with 100 people in a crowd. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. I feel like we used to see a lot of things 10 years ago, we, uh, you know, and, and further. We used to see a lot of bad stuff going on. Uh, but, man, uh, in 2023, there's not as, me- as much drugs in the locker room. There's not as much prescription pills, stuff like that. Yeah. You got – I think, we, you know, we've tried to rectify a lot of the issues. You know, and with a lot of wrestlers dying young, that'll fucking make us make some changes. Um, it definitely brings it to light, you know, and – and like you said, like you'd see some of that stuff back in the day, and then yeah, and even now, like we're we're real strict with all that. Like, there's no, I'm not a fan of even wrestlers smoking cigarettes, and not, that had nothing to do. But like to me, two things about it: one, your cardio is going to suck. I don't give a shit how many squats or burpees you do if you're chain smoking, you, it's it's affecting you. And and then on top of that, like nobody wants like. No promoter wants their talent out front when the fans are coming in, <laughs> seeing a wrestler stand there smoking a cigarette or one of those pen things or whatever. Like, I know that we're in West Virginia, but we don't have exactly. to act like Exactly. There's got to be a certain level of professionalism. And it's like, even if you do that stuff, whatever. I'm not judging anybody yeah. for making 
poor decisions on their health, but like <laughs> hide somewhere, like go sit in your car. I don't know, yeah, but yeah. don't stand out front of the venue. And some of these venues, like there's only so many ways in the building. So like the, the way in is the way you came in prior to the fans showing up. So you can't just stand out in the parking lot in front of the fans and do things that don't make you look like an athlete. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I spent a number of years as a, a ticket-paying fan, and anytime I saw yeah. wrestlers hanging out in front of the building smoking cigarettes and stuff, that always, even as a kid, I was like, nah, they're probably not that good. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> like, I, well, I, I mean, like, know. and they're supposed to be larger than life. They're yeah, supposed to be yeah. like a superhero-esque person, and that doesn't mean everybody has to be, you know, the rock, but they're supposed to be held way up here on a pedestal, and as soon as you see him doing something that is universally known as being a poor choice, now you've kind of diminished your credibility. But yeah. he wore babyface, you know. But yeah. uh, that's just not I, I, I used to always hate it, uh, running into a wrestler, like if I'm at Walmart. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, damn, yeah. they are real. It's almost <laughs> like seeing your like school teacher when you're in their class that year. It's like, ugh. This is ruining every. Why are they chewing gum in Walmart? I'm not allowed to chew gum in class. <laughs> <laughs> Just a couple years ago, my fiance was like, "Oh, let's go out. Let let's go out and you know, go out and eat because uh, we rarely do that." So we went out, and I forgot that John Rambo's a fucking chef, and he was cooking the food and stuff in the back. And I was just like, "God, this is so weird." He, even in 2018, this is weird. And a talented <laughs> chef at that. He's very proud of that. He's award winning. Even to this day, you see the pictures. That's one of the things, too. Whenever I was a kid going on the NWL website, it was, you know, the House of Pain recipe of the week. Like, there was always a recipe or some kind yeah, of there was food a little, gimmick. And, I mean, the, the food thing was legit. Like, you hear him say about, like, the, the training table meals or whatever after the shows. Like, that was a thing. And that was yeah. a huge camaraderie thing. That was, that was a big thing. And, and that's one of the aspects. Just like a lot of the, the things we're doing now, like with these weekly shows and different things, there were certain things that I plucked out of there. And I, I'm using to this day 25 years later. But, like... You know, we always have catering in the back, yeah. you know, at the shows and stuff like that. But, I mean, that was something that he did. And that's, I mean, I'm not kissing his ass or trying to throw him a bunch of compliments or anything. That's just the truth. Like, and the whole roster was there. It wasn't like, hey, these guys are my guys. You come up and hang out after the show and eat. It was like the newest people to the guys that had been there forever. Like, that's just the way it was. And, uh, and you you know, a lot of times John's not sitting at the head of the table and we're all like at a Thanksgiving feast. Like, you know, he, a lot of times he was either in his kitchen doing the stuff or he was upstairs or doing whatever. But, like, he opened his door to let everybody just hang out in his living room. At a, and he'd set tables up and chairs up, like, around and his couches in the background. And Did he have 20 fucking cats even back then? He, had, he usually had a couple of them laying around. But, <laughs> That's but what yeah, I was always yeah, I mean, that here. was, like, the, the coolest thing about that, especially on the free shows, is that you didn't have to spend your own money at Sheets to get something to eat. Like, that's the way it used to be. Like, if you get paid, especially like back in the day where like 25 bucks is the new 50 bucks or 50 yeah, bucks yeah. is the new 100 bucks or whatever, <laughs> like, there was a big difference 25 years ago about how far your dollar stretched. So, you know, you get whatever your payday would be. By the time you get, you know, sandwich and gas and all the other shit, you're kind of broke. <laughs> and it's like, now you get to eat and keep your money. Like, I'll take that every day of the week. I did always think it was pretty interesting. Uh, you know, you could go on the website, you could see the action photos, or you could, he would post pictures of the food he was cooking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there's so many funny stories back then. Yeah, I definitely missed uh, a great era, I think, uh, to be in the locker room. But my era wasn't too bad either. Um, yeah, there was a lot of great talent that came out of there. there. There's a lot of great talent that came out of here. I'm I'm so proud of the Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance and the guys and the way they've carried themselves over the years. Because like when you when you hear about like 
going out elsewhere. Like we always talk about like we want to get you to the point where you're certified, where we feel like you have the foundation to go out and represent us and me and Tate and how we approach the business. So it, it doesn't come back when you go in and don't know what the hell you're doing. It comes back to us like, Hey, what the hell are they teaching those guys? So we try to get that part of it. But even now guys like Athens, like Cisco, like Reggie, like, you know, all these guys that, and Bodie and, and the guys that have come up through our ranks start to finish are always considered to be pros everywhere. They don't, they don't get egos. They don't treat people badly. They're not known as assholes. They're not going out there like, Oh, I trained at elite, even though, you know, we get a, a, we get a great pat on the back from a lot of people about what we do here and everything. And, and it's always like, I'm super humble about it. Cause it's, you know, there was a lot of work, a lot of work that went into it. It had nothing to do with like, you know, we just got like this easy coasting, you know what I mean? Like, And when those guys can still to this day carry that and then not put shade on us by presenting themselves in a poor way, whether it's just being unprofessional or or letting themselves go. I mean, because if you notice, the guys on our roster look like pros. We're huge on being in shape. I mean, even to this day, as a broken down 44-year-old that I am, I still try to maintain that because it's hard for me to be a hypocrite and say, you know, look like shit and be 350 pounds sitting in the corner, like drinking and smoking and saying, you need to get an ab, you know, <laughs> a six pack, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, if uh, I can get in the gym and bust my ass six days a week, you can get in the gym and bust your ass six days a week. Yeah. And, uh, if you saw a guy walk through the front door and he's wearing your original gear, some, some blue jeans, t-shirt, are you going to tell him, Hey, go get some gear. Or if they're like, no, 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 no. I, I want to make this my look like I, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, I would I would definitely go start at the head and work my way around. <laughs> just say this needs fixed, this needs fixed. Are you brand new or have you <laughs> But we have a whole criteria too and it, it sounds like like I'm bullshitting, but like yeah. when we have people contact us about work, whether it's these shows now, which has been a flood, or like the other shows, I mean we, we usually have a pretty steady you know, there's always new faces coming into the the PMs and stuff and uh and which I love, but you know, there's obviously only so much room but I, we have a huge checklist that Tate and I have, and it's, you know, it's, you should present that anyway, but as soon as you reach out, like, we're like, how many masses have you had in front of an audience on a live show? Like, how many, because how many years have you been working is kind of a bullshit question. Yeah. Because somebody say 10 years, well, if you're working five times a year, like, yeah. that's yeah. not that much. <laughs> and it's like. Uh, and so we're like, you know, how many matches, what kind of seminars have you done? How many organizations have you worked? How many states have you wrestled in? Like, are you that big fish in that little pond and you've never done anything else? Because if you go outside of there, you're going to have a, a rude awakening on how you're being used. If you're used to being that guy that's going over every week because everybody's beneath you. And, uh, and just a lot of different things, like send us multiple links of your match. Like, it's always send us your favorite match of hmm. you. No video packages. Cause What's the match you're sending to promoters? Um, if I was still working, it's kind of a fine line. I, I would probably send as a, a one-on-one traditional wrestling match, me and Leslie for the CPW championship in Romney, because it was just a great match. And Textbook, yeah. Like it was, there was a lot of technical wrestling, and, and Leatherman was thinner, and I was heavier, so we were very close to the same size. Like he's significantly taller than me, but he was probably within 10 pounds of me at that time. So it was a nice traditional match and i think it holds up through generations like you could play it in the 70s it'd look great you could play it right now and it'd still be great and uh in my opinion but 
I, I, I would hold it up against any kind of just a traditional wrestling match. And if it was something that was going a little bit extreme, it would be the one with Gallows on that Ric Flair, Terry mm. Funk, the huge show, just because it was, it was pretty insane. There was a lot of ooh and ah moments. It was, and it was a very, uh, it was a nice progression from start to finish. It went from wrestling to getting more intense to using things to getting shit that everybody's just like, oh my god, and then, and uh, and then you know the finish. And of course, Terry Funk was involved and. Leatherman was a yeah. Player. Terry Funk did it's get involved. About his, yeah, he was the special guest referee outside the ring, and and uh, so yeah. I mean that was that was awesome. Didn't he punch you? He did. Laid me right out. Punched me harder than I may have ever been punched in my whole life. He laid it in. Oh yeah, huh. and he's lefty too, which was great. <laughs> um, because we're sitting there and had the idea to do do that at the end with him because he had to come in and make the count, and it was a kind of an elaborate thing, so I won't get too far into it. But basically, we're I was going to make him raise my hand. And, yeah, I remember then, that. Yeah. You know, he ended up, we had words, and I gave him a shove, and then he gave me the shove back, and then when I threw the punch, well, when we had pitched it, it said about blocking it, and, and then lay me out, and he's just going, shaking his head. And it was so funny, because, uh. because when he got there, initially, it was like, he's, he looked like an old man, like when he's walking around. Then he goes out in the aisleway and starts walking down, and we had a huge, elaborate setup, railing, and these giant curtains, all this stuff. A nice grill area. As soon as he gets in the aisle, he starts jogging and doing Terry what Funk. The hell? And I'm like, he just flipped the switch. That always freaks me out. So, like, and when he's in the back, it was the same way. You know, he's just kind of walking around. They, you could tell when people can find that zone and be yeah. there. So he's just sitting there and he just slowly just starts shaking his head. He's got his glasses on and everything. And, and I'm like, oh, shit. And Gallows <laughs> is standing there and Leatherman's standing there. And because uh, we were just filling him in on something. Well, he just shakes his head. He went, that won't work. I'm lefty. How about, how about I duck? And I went, yes, sir. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, he did it. It was right on point. And then as soon as I turned around after the miss, he clocked me right in the mouth. And I was like, and, and later that night, I, I was thinking back to Mick Foley's book when he talks about Terry Funk. He's like, people always ask him, how does Terry Funk's punches look so good? And he's like, because he punches you in the fucking mouth. Yeah, because they're real. But yeah, he, he blasted me. And I was like, I was laying on the ground, you know, and it felt like my cheek was swollen. It didn't, but I could feel it. It was like that sting. And I was like, that was awesome. Of course, I landed in tax, but and that was like Jerry Lawler's punches to the nose—the ones that look amazing. When I wrestled him in 01, he did that where he punches like 15 times in the nose, hit me in the bridge of the nose every single time. My eyes were just watering like hell. I mean, oh wow! It, it, it wasn't—you know—it didn't feel like a, like a bloody nose or anything, but it, like you could feel it in every single one. You could feel that tap right on the bridge of your nose. Like talk about precision to be able to do that to someone's nose and not. Uh, and not actually bust their nose, but I was just like, holy shit, he just punched me in the nose 15 times in a row and hit yeah. me every time. That's so interesting. You know, Ric Flair's documentary just came out and he was talking about having the string hanging down and he'd just keep punching the string yeah. until it wouldn't fucking move. Yeah, it was weird. I I got pretty precise after years and then it was like, and then everybody, I, I remember a quick story, it was like, 2013, I think, I was wrestling Shane Malice. And it was the first time I'd ever wrestled him. I only wrestled him like two times after that a few years ago. But um, he was really young. I think he'd only been around maybe four or five years. And I guess everybody was saying, oh, Jake's going to beat the shit out of you. That's how he works. Like, he's going to kill you. Like, he's squashing and all this. I was never like that. But anyway, we went out and we, and we didn't talk about anything. Like, there was no we, – we didn't even really have any bullet points at all. The, the finish, and that was it. And because uh, I was doing something to go with Leatherman going into this – Thing with Leatherman, but uh, so we got and do this match forever, and he comes back and he was like, 
man, you didn't beat the shit out of me at all. That's great. It's <laughs> like the first time I've ever wrestled a match where I just went out wide open and we just worked. And I was like, <laughs> what did you think was going to happen? Because like he didn't tell me that beforehand, I guess, you know, because he was nervous about it or whatever, because he had people in his ear. And I feel like Leatherman had a part of that because he used to do that shit all the time. He would get in somebody's ear and go, look at him over there. He's going to beat the shit out of you. Yeah. Like, Knock it off, man. Nobody threw a harder punch than Leatherman's club. We used to call it the club because he'd hit you with like the, the meat of the hammer fist. Yeah. He would just hammer fist you in the forehead. And of course, he's a big dude, and he's got a heavy hand. He, I mean, he hit way harder than I did. No, you definitely have a mystique about you, because whenever you booked a match for me versus you, there was a bunch of uh, guys that I grew up with, backyards and stuff, that have watched you for years, too. And they just, we all, the, everyone was just like, oh, man, what the fuck is this going to look like, Travis Dufour and Jake Davis? Because they had seen the strides I had been making. You were already the guy for a number of years. So they all like that. That was a big deal for me, not just to wrestle you, but seeing all my childhood friends come out because they were like, "This is the fucking match." That was cool. I'm glad you brought that match up because I, to this day, I love that match. I'll watch it every once in a while when I get into like one of those little rabbit holes where I'm by myself for whatever reason, just sitting there chilling. I'm like, "Yeah, there's one I'm gonna watch." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just because it there was such a nice contrast there, and that's the way I looked at it initially. I told Tate, I was like, "Hey, reach out to the four because on that show we had done." A formula. I said, why don't we do a show where we have, it was kind of the way we did in like the first couple shows we did, where we had a bunch of young trainees in their first match or two. And obviously you were pretty far past that point, obviously, but it was like, I was way down the road. And then you were the, the young like guy that's like headlining a bunch of shows. And like I'm like, halfway down the road, we never yeah. really crossed paths other than when you were like brand new, just starting to train. And I was like, that seems like it'd be a pretty good match. Cause every time I had seen either a clip or some kind of video package or on like a rare, I think you may have done like one or two indie pro shows yeah. back in the day. Mm-hmm. And I'd seen a few different matches that you'd had, but I was like, for whatever reason, it didn't line up to where, and it was one of those things like, it was just a generational gap. I think like I was talking about the Battle Royals, like when would you and I get booked against each other for whatever reason, whether we're both heels or whatever the case is. Um, I was like, I would love to do a match like that. I always thought about like Bret Hart when he was the champion in like the mid nineties and he's wrestling like Quang and the ones. Who <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. All those guys are great. And they all worked a different style than him. It was flashier than him. And you were way more athletic than I ever was. And so I was like, this could be fun because while you're a lot lighter and thinner, cause I was probably two eighty five at the time at least, but I was like, you're taller than me, but you're thinner than me, but I'm heavier than you. And so I have the power advantage, but you have the height advantage. So it kind of like evens us out a little bit. Yeah, psychology wise, what so can we make? So much quicker than this? me, but then yeah. like it, nobody really sees you like brawl the style that I was brawling at that time. And there's wow. a few things there where it got intense and and you suplexed me on the floor. I, I believe I did because <laughs> I remember there was a clip we, of that. We didn't that talk I about that. Think <laughs> somebody. Well, yeah, I don't like to talk about stuff. I'm not a bit. I'm not as a, soon as you hooked me, I was like, okay, okay, and. I always make sure that that I always leave the ring worse than my opponent. <laughs> so, but like I was, I had already like I like I said I had already seen your work a lot, and I was like, well, there's some things here that could be fun, like you know the running kick that you do and yeah. the bump off. Of you it took that maybe. like a shotgun, and it was like if there's you know like the Russian leg sweep out of the her yeah. the deal and all. that. I didn't typically see you doing stuff like that, and I didn't, and I thought that's that's where the contrast come in because. Yeah. With the size advantage, you are quicker, so I should always kind of be trying to catch up. But whenever you're doing the flashy stuff that I had seen you do before, I'm like, people don't see me get have that done to me very much. It's usually like a brawler brawler. I'm not wrestling guys that are significantly smaller than me much. 
especially because I was a babyface at the time, so it was like you never really see that. It's kind of like watching Hogan and Savage or something. And yeah. not to say that I'm Hogan at all, <laughs> yeah. more than you're <laughs> but it had that same feel. Like I'm still trying to catch up to you. You're still faster than me. You're still quicker. You're taller. You're longer. You can. You have a better reach than me. Like flying around with kicks from halfway across the ring. And I'm like, I got to get a hold of you to slow you down. And and then that was kind of the story we told. I thought it was a great formula, and it was. I love that I our know. finish was a spine buster. Yeah. Anytime yeah. that we can finish on a note with a move that gets overdone. Yeah. I like because I feel like I'm saving the business just that's, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why I never, I never try to get any crazy ass dangerous moves or anything. Never like, a Canadian. You never tried it? No, I, hmm. I was, I was not a fan. Um, they, they look great. I'll watch Ricky Morton do it all day. <laughs> yeah, in my opinion, in my opinion, the business should have decided that Ricky Morton's the only person allowed to do it. Yeah. Because once he started doing it, the place blows up. When all these guys that look like they should be able to do it, do it, it's like, nah, wah, wah. Yeah, like, the first time P.D. Williams pulled that out, everyone was like, wow. Yeah. And, it, uh, and I mean, everybody's got to set the pace. And then, like, as soon as you establish, like, yeah, yeah I, I think – I think that should become Ricky's move, and nobody else should ever be yeah. able to do it. Because, yeah, Ricky's going to work at least 25 more years. <laughs> he is. I absolutely love Ricky and Robert. <laughs> I think Jimmy Valiant's still out there taking bookings. We we did a, a real quick, I know because we're running long, but last last year, I believe, Gallows called me. He's like, hey, I got a Larry Auto show. You guys want to come down? I got Arn on it. Um, Arn's son was working John Schuyler. And Arn was coming, and he had to manage him. And he asked Leatherman if he wanted to manage Skyler. I'm like, nice, amazing. So I was like, dude, I, I'm you know I'm not wrestling because I had already wrestled him um, in my last match, and I had some injuries and stuff. But I said I, I would love to come down and do commentary. He was like, yes. So I got to commentate the Rock and Roll working Gallows and Anderson in a tag, and then I got to commentate Arn. And his son, nice, and Skyler and Leatherman, and I was just like, man, this is amazing. And then we ended up, you know, I he had a couple other people there that were working the did commentary locally, so I sat in on those two matches. And it was like the, the second half of the show was was the other guys, but but we peeled out. But I was like, man, this is what wrestling's supposed to be. Like, you know, they had the table set up right there at ringside. Bob Keller was doing it with me. Bob Keller is one of the greatest dudes in all of wrestling. If he could be at every wrestling show. Every wrestling show would be better. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> He's the best utility man in all of pro wrestling. But, uh, but yeah, um, just to jump back before we get too far down the hole with the Elite Pro, man, these Thursday shows, we've had two of them now, and, I mean, it's already got a buzz. Like, both of them sold out in a day. And, I mean, it's not a huge room, as you can see. we got 68, 70 chairs, something like that, and we got a few straight chairs. So we're probably looking at, like, 75 seats total. When you can sell out... Next week's show, when people are leaving this show and they're getting like it sells out before the people leave again, like this is going to grow and grow. And then you know, we got this balcony setup that we have here, and I think that it's it's definitely if one thing like last year we had I believe nine shows, and obviously the pandemic and a couple years before that kind of affected how many shows we could do. But you know, generally we tried to run somewhere between like nine and fifteen shows every year that we've run. And, you know, sometimes we have double shots. So we had two years, like in, like the mid, like 2013, 14, where we had, I think we had like 15 shows or something. This year in 2023, we're looking at approximately 45 shows. Wow. And uh, and then we're hoping to get 
60 shows next year. And then, you know, obviously see where it goes from there because eventually you're going to run out of weeks. But, <laughs> um, but to go from having four or five weeks of planning a card and trying to figure everything out and figure who could be here and trying to book all the, you know, the talent and, and the matches and everything about it and the venues and everything. The sweet part about this is that this is always here so we can run a show here every week and it's, it makes it easier because there's not all the setup tear down and everything, but it's become such a full-time job now compared to having four or five weeks or whatever, three weeks, um, sometimes like two weeks to, to, to book a show. But now it's every week. And since we're only doing four matches, it's, a, it's you know, with everybody being like independent contracting or whatever, trying to nail down who we have and, and then come up with four completely different matches, finishes all the dynamic that you need for a show and, uh, and try to do that within a couple days every week. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. wow. And then we have to tie every show in. So that's a challenge in itself too. So like, do you think you'd be able to do it by yourself? No, th- no. there's no way. Um, we've, we've finally come to terms with the fact that to continue growing, we need to kind of look at compartmentalizing and getting a team together. Yeah. Uh, Tate and I have been exclusively, it's been us all like from start to finish. Um, you know, we have, and it's been kind of a family affair because like, you know, for years and years before my mom's health started to fail, like she was our ticket lady at the ticket. Every time, every person that came in the front door, they saw my mom sitting there at the table. My wife handles so much stuff oh, yeah. from running the doors to the catering backstage, all this other stuff. Uh, there was a, there was a good while there where Tate's wife did ran outs and for us and a bunch of other stuff. You know, obviously Danny and Reggie are in the, on the roster there. I mean, there's just so much going on. Uh, as far as that, but we, even then we kept it close to the vest. I mean, obviously we're like immediate household family is the only people that we trusted with anything from a dollar to, you know, dealing, making us look good in the back by having a good setup to whatever, helping people to their seats, all that stuff. And Danny's your daughter. Yes. And what do you want her to learn from all of this? Um, it's amazing because she didn't never said anything about wanting to be a wrestler. She always came to the shows when they were local and stuff. Uh, whenever we started doing this, she'd always come to these growing up, but she never said anything to about three weeks before she was 18 saying she wanted to start training. I was huh. like, yeah, whatever. Huh. Like never, never even a single word. Hey, I might do that. I mean, and this is your daughter. Years. So this yeah. surprises like, you. Like in my huh. house every day of my life and <laughs> never said a word about it. Never showed any interest. Before. Never showed a word. Even when I like watch back a match or something or somebody like one of the guys, cause that was another thing that the guys would do coming up. They would come to my house and, we'd watch the tapes of their matches and we'd break them down and stuff as part of the training. And uh, Tate, not as receptive to guys. <laughs> he didn't mind him in the ring at training. Is not a social person when it comes to wrestlers. And uh, if you notice, like, the, like anytime you've ever been around after a show, like he's like, all right, everybody needs to get the hell out of here. I'm going to go, I'm yeah. gonna go hang with the people that I love. <laughs> but, uh, and I'm like, hey, everybody, we got an after party here. Let's go hang out. That's that's me. I end up, you know. But anyway, so we we kept it pretty close. But then she, like, when she turned eighteen, like three days later, she was like, "Okay, when can I start training?" I'm like, "You can go right now." And she and I went over. We worked out for a couple hours, and then, like, she's just been in the mix ever since. And within, I think it was probably six months, she had her first match with Tess Valentine, and then she, you know, got in. Like Casey was all over the place at that time, so she had wrestled Casey a few different places. Casey nice. Carlisle and. That's a good you know, one to have take you under Casey, their wing. Man or woman is as good as yeah. any indie person I've ever seen on shows, and uh, like it, it was always funny when when some guys would I would say that, and they're like, "Well, I mean, she's she's one of the best female wrestlers." I'm like, "She's one of the best wrestlers." 
period. And she'd beat the shit out of half the guys in the locker room right now if you try to say that. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's true. Like she, I always, I've said for years, because she and I are pretty close, I was like, you are the female doppelganger to me. Mm. Because people were nervous about working you because they thought you were going to beat the shit out of them. Then you realize that you're a pro when you're in there and you, you're aggressive, but like you're safe and everybody wants to book you. Uh, a big part of the reason why Casey was so damn good is, I mean, she spent years as a great manager. Yeah. So and whenever you go from learning, having that psychology, seeing that psychology, being a part of putting together the matches for years, and then you find yourself, now you're a worker. Yeah. Oh, this is, this is some shit that used to get over. And okay, I think, let me do this. I think what worked great for her was that, um, and, and I think that's why, why my daughter's really solid, and Tess, for that matter, whenever she was still working. But I'm so against like intergender matches. I don't like guys beating the shit out of girls in front of the fans. To me, it's just, especially when you're talking about like a family oriented show, I mean, you can get away with it depending, you know, get a Philly and get away with it all day. If you come here and you got people sitting there with their, you know, 10 year old daughters and little kids, you don't want to show them. It's fine for a guy to be stomping the shit out of a girl. I don't really believe however tough a girl is that a guy can be beating the shit out of her, her absorb it the same way another guy would. I don't think that, that it's good for an image perspective, I don't think it's good for the dynamic of wrestling because I don't think that it it hurts the credibility of the guy, and that's not saying anything about a girl. But like if if Casey, who I have all the respect in the world for, is wrestling me, and I'm you know spine busting the shit out of her, and I'm forearm her in the face, and like you see a lot of these intergender stuff now, it's it's not. Then I turn around and wrestle you. What what's what's the difference? If, yeah. If if I beat you worse than her, what does that say for you? If I if you beat me, what does that say for me? Like, it's and it has nothing to do with questioning her abilities. It's just it, it doesn't work for me in the psychology of things, but also it doesn't work in the societal things because you don't want to yeah. advocate a woman getting beat up by a man. It just doesn't work. It doesn't matter if she can win or not. And that's one of the big things as a society that we're forgetting is that uh, teach their own. Uh, I think that that's awesome that you wouldn't do that. I personally wouldn't wrestle a woman as well, like on a consistent basis, the intergender thing, because, man, that has blown up yeah. in the last 10 years. But to, but to get on the, the flip side of that coin I was going to get to, I almost trailed off, but, like, they all trained with guys. So when they get used to wrestling with guys, then they go in with girls, they're next level. It's kind of yeah. like... Honestly, it's kind of like training in a hard-ass ring like we had at the House of Pain at the beginning. and, and then, Like we had it in that wooden ring that was like a coffee table. It did not bounce at all. I even put a brace in the middle so we didn't break it because everything was wood. And two of the guys did break the frame one time, so I had to oh. seal it with another <laughs> board. So anyway, it was, it was solid as a rock. So then whenever we got this ring, it was like jumping on your bed compared to jumping on the floor or a coffee table. So like if, if you're training hard, then you always look good whenever you're in the ring. And it's just like, you know, training harder, doing, you know, burpees and cardio and ring time and all that stuff in training. Then when you're in the ring, you don't take a deep breath. You look like a pro. Yeah, all day. yeah, yeah. And the, the females working out with the guys working exactly the same way. As soon as they're working with the girls, now they're way up here. And the, the other girls that are only used to working girls are way down here. And now it's like, there's no way they're catching up. So this girl is top notch. And, uh, and I, I feel strongly about that because every girl you see, it's so solid. Even, you know, and Tessa Blanchard, obviously, she does a lot of that intergender stuff, but yeah. same, same concept. She's working guys all the time. I, it's just my personal preference. I don't, I don't care for it. But. And, uh, you know, the lineage of Jake the Machine Davis uh, continues on with Danny. Um, 
as far as your career at the end of the day, what what do you want people to think about Jake the Machine Davis at the end of the day? Um, I would say that like I, that guy bled a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know it's funny too. Like without getting too long winded about it, like I had I had hundreds and hundreds of matches that never had any aspect of that, and unfortunately, like once we got into that and I had started doing it, and I was I was willing to do it, and I was willing to do it at a high level. Um, you kind of get typecast and kind of painted myself into a corner because then I got to the point where, like, if I wasn't in one of those matches, people felt like they weren't getting to see what they've seen before. And, you know, I'm sure Terry Funk went through it. I'm sure Mick Foley went through it. And every other guy that went and Sabu and all those guys, like, you can't go back once you get that far because yeah. then every single time you do it, now all of a sudden, even if you have a traditional match, all of a sudden you got to take a hold of Travis DeFore and suplex him on the floor because you got to give him something. Yeah. Because if I just go in and Matt wrestle the yeah. whole time, I can't, like, they can't watch it's like me. He didn't even do the thing. Exactly. And there's so much, you know, once you get to, like, big bumps or, you know, landing on the ground or even, you know, weapons or whatever it is, once you get that far down the road, it's kind of hard to peel back. So then it ends up being like, always these main event things or like steel cages or any of that kind of stuff like that. It, it's hard to peel, peel the peel it back when you're doing it every month, when you're doing it every week, like, you know, like a raw or a SmackDown or something, people can see you do so much that isn't that then you can kind of, but whenever you're getting like, you need this main event, you need this main event you need to like, this is what they're expecting yeah. every month or six weeks or whatever it is. They, they want to see that. But, um, but yeah, like I, I, I want people to remember that like I worked hard, to be good at everything instead of the best at one thing. And then I didn't paint myself into that corner. Unfortunately, the hardcore thing is a huge part of what people's memory of me is. But, you know, I could take a guy on the mat and stretch him 99% of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that one of the biggest things behind the scenes is that while people may have looked at me like that, they knew that that's not who I was. So, like, just because you can do it doesn't mean you have to do it. And then... As far as the fans go, like... And no matter what people think about you, if they saw you in the locker room and they showed up at a show, they'd know, okay, that's a good hand. Yeah. We're at a good show. Yeah, and, that, and that, that, that was my goal, just to be as good. I mean, I, I, when I said it earlier, like, everything I ever did, even, like, in my last few matches, I just watched it in slow motion, like, frame by frame. And sometimes I'd be disgusted because something wouldn't look the way I want. So I'd just make sure I fixed it. And, and I think it was just dedicated into the art and try to be as snug with zero daylight in my work i just wanted i wanted to be able to work everybody the same and i wanted people to feel like i was a pro and that they every time they spent a dollar to see me like i wanted to be one of the people they wanted to spend the dollar on yeah you know what i mean yeah so but yeah i mean that, that sounds all cliche but but legit i mean 25 years my entire adult life i mean i was barely 20 when i started so I, I never counted the matches. I was never a guy that would write down everything, single thing I did, like John Schuyler or Chris Jericho or somebody. Oh, really? They, they write down every match, every finish, every opponent, all that stuff. Sometimes I wish I did that. I, I kind of wish I did <laughs> yeah. just because, like, every match has its own memory. And yeah. Then, like, as soon as somebody will bring something up, I've had guys that I hadn't seen for a long time. I'm like, oh, yeah, I wrestled you whenever I was first starting, mm. and it was, like, one of my favorite matches. I'm like, oh, yeah. There and is and spaces in your brain that yeah, people can scoring. unlock it. Yeah. And, yeah, it's cool, but... Yeah, I mean, this. the cool thing about this business is that, like, you can always find something else as you go along. Like, right now, I've kind of faded to the back, and now I'm that guy behind the camera, so to speak. And now I'm getting to watch people, and I get to have a vision, and then I get to watch these artists go out there and try to create it 
And then there's that helpless feeling of, are they going to make it the way I want? And a lot of times, especially with yeah. our roster, it's way better than I thought it was going to be because they're able to do that. But I don't know. It's, it's a never-ending story, so to speak. That should be like the name of the book. Jake the Machine Davis, the never-ending story. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, kind of like this podcast. <laughs> we were talking about maybe an hour, almost two. <laughs> I was like, hour tops, Jake. Uh, That's all right, though. I like talking wrestling and hearing myself, so. No, yeah, th- this was a lot of fun. Um, I know that my laptop is dying. We wanted to do like a special edition of the Travis Dufour show. Um, couldn't have been more happy to make my way out to Kaiser, West Virginia, where, which is where the stomping grounds for the Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance is and will be for the foreseeable future. Guys, please look up Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance on Facebook. That's like the go-to information. That hub. is the best way to go. Yeah. Elite, uh, I guess it's WWW, isn't it? <laughs> EliteProWrestlingAlliance.com. Oh, you guys have a website. Elite Pro Wrestling Universe. Um, yeah, I'm not good with all the dates. Take and just rattle them off, but it's not hard to find. Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance on Facebook. Uh, we have a YouTube channel the same way. YouTube.com backslash Elite Pro Wrestling Universe. Um, and you'll see countless videos over the years that I've mentioned some of. And then, obviously, that's the quickest way to get a hold of us is Private messages on that Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance site. And uh, if you're interested in training, same thing. Ask the questions. We set up a, a in-person appointment here at the training center so you can see what you're about to get yourself into before a dollar spent or a bump is taken. So, um, Are you able to do a Zoom meeting to show them through Zoom? Uh, we <laughs> No, I couldn't. Tate may be able to, but Tate's like, he's like me even more so, like, I want to talk to you on the phone. I don't want to do a lot of private messages. I'm a big. The older you guy. are, the more I feel like we want. We'd rather be in person. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's so much less of that. I don't like <laughs> people were a lot more brazen when they're texting and they're behind a screen or a computer. We like to stand and talk to people face to face, and because I can tell in two minutes if a guy's going to stick around. Because like you know, every time we talk, you're like looking right in my eyes and. I'm a big eye contact guy when it comes to actually talking business. So if you're not willing to do that, if you're looking at the floor the whole time you're talking and you're kicking an imaginary rock, it's like, you're not going to last brother. One of the nice things about wrestling though, is about 10 times out of 10, you can tell if somebody's a a bullshitter right out the gate with wrestling. Yeah. I've had so many people come to me and say, Oh, I did MMA. I did, I did the UFC stuff. That's always my favorite. (laughs) I'm like, that's not a real thing. (laughs) But like, they'll give me these accolades of varying things that make them in their mind, a badass. And I'm like, and then they get in here and hit the ropes 10 times back and forth. And they're over on the floor, dry heaving. And I'm like, all right, brother, we'll see you next week. And then we never see him again. Yeah. I would like to say with the, the new elite pro wrestling Alliance training center and studio, uh, throw down Thursday, every Thursday night. And if you want to come train with the Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance, you will not believe what happens next. But the only thing I ask is that you come ready to work because you will have to bust your ass every time you come in here. But everyone else does, so you'll never be doing it on your own. We're a team straightforward all the way up and down the roster from the brand-new guy that just started to the guy that's, been, that's the heavyweight champion. And uh, that's the way we handle our business like be ready to bust your ass the last training we had like eight guys in here and seven of them were laying on the floor outside the ring trying to get to their feet and i was laying in the corner laughing with rat ass yes you will learn everything you need to know to be a successful pro and you will be in shape eventually because we will not allow you not to be so other than that i'd like to say thank you for allowing me to be on this and 
I look forward to taking up two more hours of your time down the road sometime. Yeah, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Guys, Jake the Machine Davis, remember to follow the Travis Dufour show at the Dufour brand. Keep an eye out for our next uh, season three whenever we're live streaming the show again. And you won't believe what happens next with Elite Pro Wrestling Alliance and with the Travis Dufour show. You, you will believe what happens next. I have no fucking time. <laughs> well, you throw it off. There. You can always cut that out in post-production. <laughs> you will always believe what happens next. See you guys next time. <laughs>